Hey, you. Now, sir. Give me the cyber razor cut. A cyber razor cut. Yeah! Hello everybody and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast. This is the first ever one platform singular console special. Welcome to the next level. This is our Mega Drive show or and our Genesis special if you prefer. Uh, you can listen to Cane and Rinse via all popular podcasting platforms canerince.com is the place to go for the schedule to the regular show if you subscribe on our patreon patreon.com slash you get every regular podcast a week early and these format specials a full three months earlier than non-subscribers and all you need to do is pledge one us dollar a month or 75 english pence and uh, that joy can be yours we also have another podcast sound of play uh, which is all about video games, music. Please subscribe, review and rate wherever you get your podcast from. Follow us on the social media places that you would expect to find us. Now, joining me, Leon Cox, in this first format special, our returning guest and Sega Mega Drive fan, I guess, Dan Clark. Yeah, it's a subject close to my heart, so thanks so much for the invite. That's all right. I think you've joined us on all our Mega Drive uh, game shows up to this point, pretty much, so it had to be done. And also, very excitingly, we have none other than Digital Foundry Retro's John Linneman. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I'm always happy to talk Sega. Beautiful. Uh, yes, uh, giving real credence and legitimacy to this little project of ours. Uh, if you aren't familiar, we'll do another plug at the end, but uh, just go on to YouTube, Digital Foundry Retro, and you can find John's amazing videos all about not only Sega stuff, but all kinds of games from the history of the medium and he picks them apart in fine detail i don't know how he does it uh with some magical mysterious tools that i do not understand um perhaps we'll have you on for an interview sometime john you can actually uh teach us or certainly, tell us at least certainly explain some of the <laughs> if, if you don't get thrown out of the magic circle or whatever it is for, for giving away your secrets <laughs> So, on to the Mega Drive or Genesis. Uh, so, this is a, the first of a new format show for us. Uh, obviously, you can't talk about a platform without talking about the games, but bear in mind, listeners, we have covered some of the Mega Drive classics uh, throughout the history of the Kana Rinse podcast, so do go back and check those out. I uh, won't keep mentioning them all the way through. Uh, just search for a game. If we've covered it, you'll find it on kanarinse.com. Uh, but obviously, we will talk uh, somewhat about games but we go way more in depth on our regular show this is about the console which was released in japan on the 29th of october 1988 for 21,000 yen uh, the u.s release followed i believe it arrived in new york and la first before going nationwide john you might know more about that than me 
Yeah, as far as I can tell, actually, because I did not live in those regions, so I had sure. to wait a little bit longer to see it. Yeah. But yeah, I remember, you know, kind of, you'd start seeing it in the magazines at the time, and I think Nintendo kind of did something similar with the yeah. NES years before. So, you know, huh. it was just kind of this normal trickle into the store effect at the time, where mm. before retailers really had these, like, hard dates. Yeah. So, you know, I was aware of it initially, but it took a little bit of time before I actually got my hands on it. Yeah, yeah. But that was uh, August 89. So we're going back uh, 29 years, pretty much. Uh, in the UK, as it was always away, sorry, it was $200 in the US, I should say. Uh, in the UK, it was 14th of September 1990, another year on. So it was almost uh, a two-year-old machine by the time we got the PAL version. And it was released at a a fairly expensive 189.99 i'd say that was quite a lot yeah. of money in 1990 uh, but it was cheaper than an amiga for example which was uh, twice the price basically at that point uh, it was probably the major competition at that stage uh, the genesis went on to become sega's most successful console selling over 40 million units worldwide according to sega half of those in the usa 8 million in europe uh, three and a half odd in japan where it was less popular, funnily enough, uh, and three million in Brazil, where, of course, Sega have this kind of odd relation. Well, I don't know if it's odd relationship, but uh, as I understand it, like the Master System was still getting games released for it in Brazil well into the mid or late 90s. And the Mega Drive was still popular going into the 2000s. Yeah, the, uh, there's a weird history with Sega in Brazil, but yeah. <laughs> tech Toy is uh, is the company who yeah licenses all that stuff, and and with the tech not being or traditionally <laughs> not being quite so uh, contemporary in 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 Brazil, it was uh, yeah it was hugely popular. Um, so yeah, let's go back uh, to the time, uh, the late '80s. So John, you said you got your first Mega Drive fairly close to launch. Is that right? Oh no no it was it was at least like 92 or 93 for oh, me. Oh okay. Yeah, I was aware you're of it. You're a pretty I, young man, aren't you? You uh, you know, <laughs> not that young actually, but <laughs> it's more like my first experience with it was at a friend's house who was known for getting just about every system early or right on time. So he had oh, yeah. it fairly on early in the life even before Sonic the Hedgehog had shipped. So, you know, we were playing a lot of early stuff, such as the pack-in, which was Altered Beast. Oh, yeah. Among others. You know, I was excited for things like uh, Michael Jackson's Moonwalker. Of course. <laughs> which was kind of a classic at the time. You know, it, it was a it was an interesting machine, I think. I wasn't completely convinced out of the gate. But I was... Really? I was... Well, so I was really into a lot of the late NES-style action games. You know, Mega Man style, mm -hmm. you know, Castlevania... And the early days of the Genesis didn't really have a lot of that going on, right? Uh, right? So mm. there was some interesting arcade conversions, which were fun, yep. and some cool action games, and it looked neat. But it, for me, it was that moment of when you see Sonic the Hedgehog, and then you know more and more platformers and adventure games like that started to show up on the system. That's when I was really convinced. So it took a little bit of time to really pull me in. So we see uh, when you do your uh, pieces to camera uh, for Digital Foundry Retro, is that your personal collection that we see behind uh, you? That's a fraction of it, yes. <laughs> a fraction, <laughs> a tiny fraction. There seems to be quite a lot of, well, there's a lot of everything in it, but there seems to now be uh, quite a lot. Are you the kind of collector who wants to get one of everything that was ever released or do you carefully curate your collection around things that you actually love and admire or 
How does well, that go on, for you? on the software side, I usually try to stick with uh, a reasonable good selection, a reasonable selection of games that I feel that I actually genuinely enjoy playing. So I do have a fairly large library for these systems, but when it comes yeah. to hardware, uh, I do like to get as much hardware as possible, which means as many variants that exist Great. and are reasonably affordable. For instance, yes. I do not have, which we'll talk about later, the Sega CDX. I missed right. out on that and the yes, prices, well. you know, but still. So, yes, I do have multiple Model 1 Sega Genesis consoles and various others that we will Beautiful. touch on soon. The perfect guest indeed. Dan, uh, what are your earliest Mega Drive memories? And what was it about this system, do you think, that has made such a strong impression, the fact that you're still so, you you know, you love coming on here and, and celebrating all these, these Mega Drive games all these decades later? Well, I was a Sega kid at that point anyway. I, I had an Afterburner t-shirt that I got from subscribing <laughs> to S, uh, the Sega magazine. So um, forgotten that one. I was pretty well... Um, into Sega, and then the uh, screenshots started appearing of uh, this uh, new, the Sega 16-bit system from Japan. Um, mm. And it was just some fuzzy screenshots, really, of Altered Beast, Super Hang-On, um, and Alex Kidd. And I suppose they didn't look that great looking back, but yeah, Altered Beast looked like it was... Um, it looked like my mind thought the arcade game looked, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, to um, be fair, on Altered Beast, though, there is actually some improvement over the arcade. The arcade version doesn't have parallax scrolling. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. You know, Hey. <laughs> so, so yeah, I'd um, seen all these screenshots and then the, the Japanese release came along. And thinking back to, I guess, the lead time of magazines then would be quite a while. And then mm -hmm. for a console to even be imported over, uh, from looking at the dates, we didn't really get it talked about in our magazines until a good few months after the Japanese launch. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, right. Possibly even up to six months before they started actually reviewing the games rather than it just be some screenshots of this is what is out in Japan with um, yeah. some more detail and what have you. Totally, yeah. And then it kind of kept building up throughout that year. And again, the, we knew the American version was coming out, but there'd already been talk. Uh, do you remember Sega used to put these adverts in the magazine saying, um, don't buy an import one because your um, cartridges won't work? Huh. I don't actually. Okay, they but... used to put it in the same... I've tried finding the um, advert that my Mega Drive came from. You know where you used to get the Telegames and Shikana adverts and... Uh, yeah, yeah. And that kind of thing, Raven. Games. And they used to, in the reviews, in the early import reviews, they always used to just have a little uh, box out on the review saying, "Thanks to this importer for lending us this import cartridge." Yeah, I mean, it was a real game. small scale yeah. thing. It was. Um, it really was yeah. kind of hobbyists uh, importing a few bits and bobs, really. I suppose just to support their own collecting and their own their own hobbies and passions. And it was a minefield with TV standards and and black and white images through scart leads and all that kind of stuff as well. For sure, and um, so I think it was. I've tried working out the dates. In my mind, I thought it was the first Christmas that it came out. But then looking at the magazines, we didn't even know about the system in this country until after that. So it would have been yeah. after the American launch. So I don't know why yeah. I chose. I think I must have had the opportunity for an American one, unless the adverts for those, again, were a few months down the line. So that Christmas, the only one available was the, the Japanese system. But um, yeah, it came with Super Hang, those three games that I've mentioned, Super Hang on, Alex Kidd and Altered Beast. And then um, an arcade stick. The, oh yes, um, power mega power stick or whatever. It's oh called. no, this is pre any official sticks. Oh okay, it's a third party <laughs> stick by um, I think the company's called uh, Demper, and it's an it's oh, called okay. an XESG one. Yeah. I've actually put a um, photo in the show notes for when we get to the peripherals later. You might um, they make proper parts for proper joysticks these days, don't they? That, that oh really? Thing. Oh okay. Yeah, yeah this yeah, was like so. a proper yeah. It was the clo a proper arcade type stick for the time, a proper micro switch joystick and. Uh, 
Oh, wow. And proper clicky buttons and what have you. Quite so, jealous now. I never had one of those. <laughs> I mean, the buttons weren't as good as an arcade-type click, but for a for a home thing, it was, um, it was yeah, really yeah. nice. Um, but yeah, then it took a long while again for any more games to arrive in these importers' shops after, after that. So, um, so that was kind of the beginning until we get to some more games later, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for me, it was uh, my friend actually bought a second-hand one. It was already a second-hand one. It was also it was a Japanese unit. I didn't even know that at the time because why would I? This was, uh, I guess, early 1991. Uh, he bought it mainly to play things like Madden and oh. uh, Lakers versus Celtics. That was those were the things he was excited about. Um, but I remember uh, I, I was you know I was pretty jealous. He he splashed out on this uh, on this console. I was a I was a big Amiga fan, but. I was, you know, starting to think that as a massive arcade fan, there were definitely things about the, the the Mega Drive that were appealing. Looking at things like Ghouls and Ghosts and Strider and Golden Axe and all this stuff, uh, but I just couldn't really afford one at the time. But I used to go around to his. He used to rent games a lot. I I remember playing through uh, games like Zero Wing in one sitting when when he'd rented it out and and stuff like that. Um, and then he got Sonic the Hedgehog uh, kind of soon after it came out, and uh, I went round and. Like everyone, I think, or like most people, I found it, you know, pretty beguiling. Um, it 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 did seem so kind of, yeah, next level, next gen kind of stuff. Um, and uh, that same friend decided to sell his already secondhand console later that year. He said he was going to sell it. And I said, oh, perhaps I could buy it. I was working with him at the time and another friend. And I said, oh, but I can't. I haven't really got the money on me. And my other friend who had a second job said, I'll lend you I'll lend you a hundred quid to buy it off him. So there it was. I paid him back like £10 a week for the next couple of months and bought my first Mega Drive. And uh, yeah, I started renting everything as well because um, cartridges were really expensive at this point. Um, the fact that it was a Japanese console totally passed me by because of the, the way the region thing worked and it already had a brutal hacksaw mod done to it so i could just jam in any old cartridge it would play them all at uh, 50 hertz pal speed um with that sort of weird glitching that you get at the bottom of the image on on pal mega drives um and but i didn't i wasn't really aware of the whole 50 60 hertz thing too keenly at this point and besides i didn't care i was playing pretty much what i thought like you said like an arcade perfect version of strider and golden axe at home so uh Can and you i had what that... games he chucked in for you no i can't remember actually what i had i think i had sonic to start with um i remember renting um fantasia uh, which was a horrific game. Yeah, you lucky um, man. I, dodged oh, yeah. I, I bought that on American Import, which <laughs> I will forever regret. Because I think I'd already played Castle of Illusion exactly. and I adored it. And so I was like, well, Fantasia must be like good like that, yeah? <laughs> no. Um, I remember playing Lakers versus Celtics and Madden. Um, I wasn't that into American football, but it taught me the rules of US. That's actually an interesting point, though, is... Um was American football actually reasonably popular over here at the time? Not really. It was shown on Channel 4. Okay. So it was a kind of niche concern. On a Sunday night, uh, there would be like a... They would occasionally... I think they would show live games late at night as well, but it was... It, they had like a magazine show and it had a kind of cult following. Oh. Um, but my friend who was into sports generally and, and quite into American sports uh, liked the sort of he, he preferred the sort of brutality and tactics of American football, I think, to to English soccer. So uh, so he was into it. And so I played it with him and then I kind of started to learn. I I'd, I'd played 10 yard fight 
like years mm. ago in the arcades and that didn't really teach me American football but it gave me the basic grounding of what you were supposed to do move up the pitch um, and, I, and I think I took it from there and, and I do remember that one of my first full price £50 or £49.99 purchases in 1990 what, uh, would have been late 91 I guess would, was Madden 92 Incredible. and um, I really got a lot of I got value for money out of that extremely expensive purchase if you can think how much 50, you know people balk at paying 50 quid for a game in 2018 imagine how much money 50 pound was in 1991 yeah but imagine how much you'd have to pay for one of those players so yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. well that's the thing about um, that's yeah. interesting about the early days of the Genesis slash Mega Drive is in North America uh, sports and celebrities were a huge part of Sega's marketing right. plan, right? Yeah. So yeah. Like, everything was aimed at pushing, oh, we got the best sports games. We've got, you know, Michael Jackson. <laughs> We've got, yeah. you know, all these things like that. That was what Sega was trying to push. Uh, and, you know, obviously that kind of changed going forward with the, the new management. But, you know, so. Yeah, there was a kind of dude bro yeah, pre pre Xbox dude bro kind of exactly uh, vibe about it wasn't there I think exactly whatever that was back then yeah uh, as always we'll also be uh, hearing from uh, the Canarins community forum posts throughout the show memories of the Mega Drive starting with Nup Raptor from the forum. I had been into video games for a few years already, trying to get as far through Gauntlet and R-Type as I could on the Spectrum with my big cousin, and I trying to make my collection of 10Ps last until the end of Double Dragon in the arcade. But the Mega Drive was where I really started falling in love with the medium. There have been so many advances in hardware since then, it's easy to forget how exciting and how advanced it seemed at the time. Each new generation of hardware brings improvements in processing power and quality of graphics, but it feels like the improvements over recent generations have been relatively incremental. Surely there has never been a leap so huge as the leap from 8 to 16-bit. The difference at the time seemed stunning. The best we had until that point was rolling around pixels as Treasure Island Dizzy and being pitifully impressed by a very blocky approximation of the eponymous Robocop. Suddenly, you had the ability to play a virtually arcade-perfect replication of Golden Axe in your bedroom. It was like a fantasy made reality. If you were there at the time, of course, then you were also a veteran of the console wars. Rivalry existed in the 8-bit era, but the 16-bit era was where things really kicked off. This was stoked to a large part by the companies themselves. Sega pitched themselves as an edgier alternative to the more family-friendly SNES. I still remember feeling pathetically superior in the playground when they came out with the super-duper-pooper-scooper slur. Mega Drive games were cooler. Our brightly coloured cartoon mascot was more mature and edgy than their brightly coloured cartoon mascot. But they still had Probotector and Street Fighter 2, with superior sound and sampled speech. Best not to dwell on it, really. Still... There was a never-ending tide of Mega Drive hits to play and replay again and again, finally making it back through to the final boss of Ghouls and Ghosts, getting all the Chaos Emeralds and transforming into Supersonic in Sonic 2, fleeing on rocket boots from manic dentists and hamsters in balls in the surreal two-player antics of Toe Jam and Earl, getting to fight Spider-Man and a sort of Bat-Devil-Man in Revenge of Shinobi, our own belated version of Street Fighter 2, and now you could play as the bosses. And it was all presented in that bold, colourful arcade fashion. So we pride ourselves on being a format agnostic show, Kane and Rince. Uh, and so, you know, we've 
we're we're avoiding which console is better than the other kind of nonsense because they all have their amazing games and and libraries worth owning. But I'm interested in the actual culture of the the, the format wars because we went from in we went from Spectrum uh, versus Commodore 64 in the main to uh, to Amiga versus ST, and then we had this you know Sega Nintendo thing. But in America, I guess you'd already you you'd already seen Nintendo absolutely destroy Sega in the previous generation. Yeah, Nintendo destroyed, well, everyone. So Sega, um, you know, NEC was trying to come in with the PC engine around the same sure. time as the Genesis. Yeah. And a lot of people actually were kind of thinking, you know, looking back that, oh, NEC, this huge company, they're going to come in and wipe the floor with Sega yeah, right. and possibly challenge Nintendo, which, mm. well, obviously didn't happen. But the Nintendo Entertainment System was really huge here and gaming on computers was not no you could get you know the amiga the c64 those were available here but it was never that popular no no. for games right so it was consoles and it was all about the nintendo the sega master system had been released here i think even tonka at some point had taken it over yeah Uh, it wasn't very successful at all It really didn't make a mark. And, you know, I'm familiar with it now, but at the time I really wasn't that familiar with it. I mean, I knew of it, but I hadn't hadn't spent a lot of time with the Master System. It was all about the NES and the Game Boy, which I guess launched the same year as the Genesis. True, yeah. Yeah, so Sega was really trying to trying to you know lever itself crowbar itself into the market and obviously they were they were doing i guess the same thing as they they tried to do with the dreamcast again of being the first to market with the more powerful machine but in this case it had at least it got at least some traction for a while before certainly in the u.s before uh nintendo came along in that case and then obviously it was sony with the dreamcast as an example of how literally different the, the markets were i remember going to florida as a sega master system owner uh, before I got a Mega Drive and expecting to go to like KB Toys and see <laughs> this range. You imagine America's going to have this wide array of games that you've never seen before and um, huh. just being so disappointed seeing all of these Nintendo games. And then the only thing that was really there, the, the game that I got was um, Where in the World is Carmen San Diego for the Master oh. System because it was the only thing I could find that we couldn't Wonderful. get back home. <laughs> awesome. Did they sequel that on the Mega Drive? I think they probably did. Yeah, or a re- rebooty type yeah. porky conversion <laughs> thing. A sacred text for any fan of the Mega Drive uh, is the book from a couple of years ago now, uh, published by Read Only Memory. Uh, it's called uh, Mega Drive Genesis Collected mm. Works by Keith Stewart, who you may know is now a, a successful novelist. He worked for The Guardian as well. Um, it's a wonderful book, a wonderful tome for any uh, game collector's library. Uh, and we have a quote from uh, Masami Ishikawa who was the team leader working on the design of the Mark III, which was the predecessor to the Mega Drive, says, We wanted the Mega Drive to have the basic performance of the preceding system boards, and we wanted to preserve compatibility with the Mark III. In fact, even SG-1002 titles were playable on the Mega Drive. The top priority was the Mark III compatibility, in order to retain gamers who owned older systems, while at the same time maximising the graphic performance. The crux was how to optimise the efficiency of the memory access cycle with the graphic memory. We also separated the CPU into a graphic component and sound component to lessen the stress on the game programme. The Mark III compatibility meant that it also had a Zilog Z80 CPU. When the Mega Drive was in Mark III mode, it was mainly running on the Z80, but when it was in Mega Drive mode, the Z80 was used only for sound. Uh, And how long did the design for the uh, process for the console take? Well... 
The project started in mid-1986 and lasted approximately one and a half years. I was the only person in charge of the project, but an additional four people became involved during the debugging process. Uh, so yeah, five people uh, came up with the Mega Drive. Um, and I guess the whole backwards compatibility thing was pretty much kind of redundant to those outside of Japan. And given the sales in Japan, I guess it wasn't that much of a system seller either. Well, I mean, we also had, I mean, the Mark III is basically a master system, right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, there was the power base converter released yes. in North America. So we kind of did yeah. get to take advantage of that capability i suppose although it did yeah. require you had the, to pay for it yeah and you then, actually had to pay for it but the yeah. option was there from the start to, to continue that library compatibility what i'm not sure of is was the power base converter released in europe it was yep. yeah okay excellent yeah and i think we even got the second model for the mega drive 2 as well um Ooh. but i mean yeah i really wouldn't I have no idea how many it sold, but there weren't many Master System owners. I mean, it, it did okay, I think, the Master System in Europe, but it wasn't like a, a, a smash hit. I'm sure the Mega Drive sold more. Um, but you could still very easily pick up, and you still can actually. You go into second-hand game stores now, there's still tons of Master System stuff just lying around. Um, it's actually probably gone up in value in recent times. Indeed. Uh, but it is a way of... You know, it, I guess it is a way of uh, bulking out your your Sega collection. Um, we'll talk about the monstrosity you can build with your with your Mega Drive <laughs> setup later on. Um, on the question of the uh, the chipset, uh, the, the the aforementioned book asks, uh, how did you decide on the Motorola sixty eight thousand as the primary CPU? And Ishikawa San says arcade consoles were already using 16-bit systems but cost considerations meant that the decision to use an 8-bit or 16-bit CPU was made quite late in the design process. I think the final decision was made by the manager at the time Sato-san who later became became president of the company. By using the 68000 we could take advantage of the programming resources already available for arcade use plus the hardware, bus components and software for coding were relatively simple to get to grips with. Uh, so it sounds almost like it was a toss of a coin. Should we go 16-bit? Should, should we stay 8-bit? And it's interesting, obviously, John, you mentioned the NEC there. That yes, was an 8-bit console. Exactly. Yeah. Funnily enough, talking of the adverts in the back of the magazines, um, NEC did one themselves in Europe that's in the back of computer and video games saying um, we are not the official um, distributors of the PC engine. Like, we can't help you with this. So I suppose yeah. NEC UK were getting all these calls from people saying, hello, this doesn't plug into my TV and what have you. <laughs> had to actually put an advert in computer and video games to, to yeah, set the record straight. So, yeah, how important was that choice, do you think, John, in in uh, in the success of the Mega Drive, the Motorola 68000? Do you think it, it played a part or the chipset in general? Oh, the success of the system? Uh, yeah. I, I would say that the... You know, back then people didn't care that much about system specifications, I'd argue. Yeah. But it was clear that there was an advantage there in terms of being able to push faster, uh, more complex games out of the gate. Yeah. And, you know, obviously, yeah, that, sure. you know, at the time it was easy enough to show larger sprites and just faster action on the screen. I mean, that's really all you needed to show. And people were usually convinced by it. Yeah. I think um, my memory of uh, looking at 8-bit screenshots, because 
we did you know we had a, we had an awareness of the the nes it you know it was here um and i could compare it against the arcade machines and computer games at the time and and i always felt like it was lacking i mean it's not surprising it was uh, it was already you know an old machine by this point but the yeah the the difference just in screenshots which is lest we forget before the days of youtube which was how we you know kind of judged things long before we got to play them um mega drive games tended to have bigger more colorful looking sprites and the the magazine writers would talk about you know multiple layers of parallax scrolling and all these effects and things and it was it was pretty easy it was pretty plain to see um but i suppose the one the one where it doesn't quite translate in uh, from screenshots is the pc engine obviously uh did have similar graphics capabilities at least statically to the mega drive so it was kind of harder to tell what the more powerful machine was at that point yeah i mean there was you could do the color capabilities were pretty good on the PC engine, but it didn't have multiple hardware scrolling layers. So if you wanted to yeah. do parallax style effects, it required some interesting software workarounds. Yeah. Though it was achieved later by quite a few games. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, yes. most games did not have parallax scrolling on the PC engine. And the size of the hue cards was a huge limiting factor on the complexity of games at the time before the CD-ROM yeah. was introduced. And thus, you know... And if you actually <laughs> played the played the two systems side by side, you could kind of feel that oh yeah, this is uh, yeah. The, the Mega Drive slash Genesis was faster. But there is one interesting thing that, looking back, I think is worth mentioning that we wouldn't have understood at the time. But mm. the NES relied on mapper chips, as I'm mm. sure you're familiar with. That was the key to achieving basically visuals and complexity beyond Super Mario Brothers. By yeah. being able to, you know, swap between these different memory banks, you could, you know, introduce more complex games and do extra things with sound. So on the Sega Genesis, very few games relied on any sort of additional processing chips at all. I mean, you yes. had Virtua Racing yeah, and probably, you know, a couple but, others here and there that I'm forgetting, but it was an uncommon thing. Whereas yeah. even when Nintendo jumped to the Super NES... While they were less common, there were still plenty of games that had to rely on additional chips to mm. overcome the limitations of the system. And I think that's kind of shows how smartly designed the hardware was in that you could do so much with, a, you know, the stock system. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll obviously, when we, we go into the games, we'll talk about how versatile the versatile uses to which developers put it to. Um now, obviously, we are in the era of uh, 4K and beyond, if you like. Um, but this uh, this console was capable of displaying at progressive uh, scan 320 by 224 pixels on the NTSC units or 320 by 240 on PAL. But of course, uh, the majority of software, there were a few optimized games, actually, but the majority of software did not use the extra lines and uh, and the image became bordered and crushed in the traditional fashion. There was also, an, uh, you could also go interlaced for a, a broader, a taller image or a more detailed image height john help me out here yeah, so, okay <laughs> so so yes the, b beyond <laughs> that uh, actually 320 by 224 was extremely common in the system but there was also a 256 by 224 mode okay. that could be used and some games did use this and interestingly that's what the nes super nes and pc engine all rely on that's pretty much the only resolution you see on those systems with yeah. with again there's some high res exceptions especially in the super nes but in general that's what you're looking at. Whereas, so the Mega Drive was higher resolution. 
So yes. when they have it the high right resolution the graphics on there, they weren't lying. <laughs> high it definition was, graphics, yeah. But at the same yeah. time, there is a little, you know, they often drew into the overscan region. So the, it wasn't yeah. drawing pixels out to the, the full resolution necessarily. And they kind of used that for some palette tricks and whatnot. So I guess back in the day on an older CRT in North America, you wouldn't even see this. But having played some Mega Drive on a PAL television, yeah. I realize now like you get these massive colored borders around yeah. most games, which... I'm just, it kind of blows my mind actually looking back at it. It's not so much an issue with Super NES where it would just draw black. Yeah. But on the Mega Drive, you play Sonic and it's just this giant blue barrier around the whole game. It's quite something. I used to, yeah. And there's this uh, glitching effect at the bottom often as well. And and I, I you can even see it when M2 re-released the compilations of Golden Axe and, and Streets of Rage and stuff for the 360. They included the, the PAL uh, ROM option. They included all three ROM options, unlike the recent compilation that's been released, which only has uh, the US ROMs. I think in in almost right. every case, um, you can actually see the the sort of yeah. The, there's like just a little it, it, what looks a, like a, a a selection of corrupted multicolored pixels at the bottom. But it's actually and like a, like a be, palette thing, so yeah. it's being used by the games. Sure, and and that was just normal. Dan, do you remember that? Do you remember thinking, is, is my Mega Drive broken? I was never sure, but it was always there. Well, I was playing mostly um, imported games anyway, so it's difficult to tell. Like, I know my Mega Drive was converted, but it would have played American and Japanese games at 60 hertz, right? Oh, okay. Well, if you had, yeah, if, if you if you had a 60 hertz capable display, which uh, which I didn't, um, it, I I mean, some TVs back in the early 90s and late well, late 80s, early 90s in in Europe would have had 60 hertz, but most of them wouldn't. But um, you know, this was the this was the start of the era when collectors would actually start, you know, sourcing their TVs based on whether it could do 50, 60 hertz, whether yeah, it could do... Yeah, RGB SCAR inputs and... Yeah, what exactly, have. yeah. I mean, for the first yeah. few years, I was on a small CRT in my bedroom, but then um, I managed to eventually sort of commandeer the big telly downstairs that had um, yeah. Yeah, an RGB SCAR input, and it, it was nice. mind-blowing at that point. It was I'd, Seeing all these details in games that I just hadn't And that's actually an interesting advantage right there, because in North America, we didn't have that option. We Composite were, only? Yeah, back in the, back in the day, it was either... Um, you know, the RF connection or composite yeah. video. Yeah. So I was not familiar at all. Yeah. Power Maker drives as well, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I had an RGB SCART lead and it's interesting now because obviously th this is kind of coming up again and it's something we talk about, Mikhail and I often talk about, like what's the, the optimal way to play games like this? Actually, the, the graphics, the art was designed in a way to be viewed through you know, crummy signals, composite or RF signals. And maybe when when they look that indistinct, they actually, there's an argument that some some say that they actually look more like they should do. But I had this RGB SCART lead that was absolutely, you know, super pin sharp, bright pixels. Every pixel, you could pick it out. And, and ever since then, like whenever a game offers a series of filters my default is nearly always the one that is just the the pure the the most like so oh, yeah. when hamster releases these games i just go to the the far left option which is the no filter whatsoever and to me that's great i love being able to see every pixel but equally i know some people want the scan lines or they want some kind of anti-aliasing or blurring like the um, dithering and the um shadows and yeah. things like that are often uh, part of that sort of trickery of the crt smudginess aren't they Totally, yeah. Yeah, and it, it kind of varies per game, I think. Um, yeah. Like Sonic the Hedgehog looks great, 
but you play mm. something like Pitfall the Mine Adventure with all the shadow detail and like sort of the shading, uh, it doesn't look as nice. And so what I've kind of found over time looking at all these mm. games is that Japanese games tend to hold up better in RGB because they would rely on color patterns and gradients that were less harsh yeah. where European and American games tended to rely on dithering. So the artwork has a lot of like pixelated dither patterns going on. Mm. So, which can look kind of ugly, I think, uh, in RGB. Yeah. You get all that weird kind of fuzzy, uh, crawl. Is it that you, you guys call it, <laughs> you know, on RGB, it's a dither pattern and composite video. It's severe, nasty dot crawl. I mean, even yeah. back then I remember yeah. the image quality wasn't pretty when Masami Ishikawa was asked what were the major strengths of the hardware in terms of graphics he said I think its strength was in having multiple displays we were uh, we were able to have two scrolling windows with both vertical and horizontal line scrolling and the sprite size could be changed to fill the whole display it could also display the background screen behind the scrolling window and could change the color of each line the number of, of available colors was limited compared to the comparable arcade systems but it could create shadows that matched each character's shape and was also capable of semi-transparency the biggest hurdle was the size of the chip we wanted to include enlarging and minimizing capabilities as well as sprite spinning functionality but the circuit design was becoming too large to fit on one chip which would have lowered the production yield rate and hiked up costs so we had to remove it from the spec the number of available colors was also limited by the size of the circuit structure uh, yeah so what he's alluding to there is effects that we might associate with the uh, super nintendo's mode 7 i suppose but dan you made an interesting observation that when the mega cd came along it brought some of these sprite scaling uh, techniques but then these games were ported to cartridge quite successfully yeah um i think it it must just be cheating on the part of um, in those two yeah. games, Wolf Team as the developers, because um, yeah. it must be done in software. Well, unless they just figured out a way to do it in software. But Treasure did some crazy stuff. Yeah, with... yeah. I mean, it can be done in software, but the fact that you had these games coming out on Sega CD or Mega CD, yeah. And the big selling point is that look at the sprite rotation, and then months later, <laughs> a cartridge game comes out looking almost identical. I, I can't, I can't see a difference if you look at it side by side. Um, so yeah, yeah. who knows what was going on there? But um, interesting either which way. I would say that uh, in that case, you know, pulling off sprite scaling, how they did it, it's a trick. But I can't imagine that it would have been possible to match what the Mega CD could do with scaling and rotating a plane. You know, like yeah, it could um, do scaling, uh, rotating of a sprite. It could uh, exactly. To do. So you know, scaling is probably a different thing. Yeah. You you could do more with uh, the Sega CD's chip than the Super NES. So Super NES was pretty limited with Mode Seven, but yeah, you're right. Some developers found ways to achieve really cool sprite scaling effects, like obviously Treasure and Wolf Team yeah. did a lot of yeah. that. I don't know uh, about you guys. Do you have any? Uh, I have some really strong memories of seeing certain effects in in operation on Mega Drive for the first time. Um, oh, yeah. The fire on the second level is it of Thunder Force Three, which is you know, it's quite a simple notion, and it's the sort of thing I'd seen in the arcades before, uh, where it's sort of um, playing around with the with the the lines and and moving the x-axis from left to right and in sequence so you're creating a sort of swaying effect, but also just stuff like the the what felt like infinite layers of it's not actually it's only a few but in, you know huge amounts of layers of, of uh, parallax scrolling in in with with so many colors seemingly on things like cast of illusion and also the the uh, the the floor effect on when they, when they did port street fighter 2 in in the special champion edition i was very impressed how they've managed to actually get the floor effect in there uh, which i think uses a similar technique to that that exactly. thunder force backdrop 
Yeah, that's actually yeah. a very common thing on the Mega Drive and thanks yeah. to its CPU is line scrolling where you can change individual scan lines, you know, one line at a time. And that allowed you to do a lot of cool depth effects, even though the system really only had two scrolling layers, I guess, yeah. versus the Super NES, which could do four layers. But the CPU kind of prevented it. Well, you could do line scrolling, and a lot of games did, but it was a little less common on there, I think. Uh, whereas on the Mega Drive, it was everywhere. And for, so for me, the one that sticks out is the first stage of Thunder Force 4. When you're oh, over yeah. the ocean with all those cloud layers and you can move all the way up and down and there's just it's it feels like endless depth in that specific scene and it always blew me away at the time. Yeah, it's a technical tour de force that one. Dan, what about you? Any uh, any blow you I'd away? I have to agree on the on the Thunder Force games. Um, but other than that, I think I was quite quite simple and was fooled by things like big sprites, <laughs> like the bosses in Air Diver <laughs> and things like just simple things or like uh, Assault Suit Lanos or Target Earth. Uh, in mm. the US. Um, How about having, Contra the like, Hardcore? Yeah, and having like, I don't know, things that looked like, not cartoons, but you know what I mean, like little anime story bits and that kind of thing. Um, I thought, always found that impressive just because it was not like I'd seen on my Spectrum before. Yeah, it's it's the same stuff. It's, um, even though it, you know, it turns out it wasn't the, it didn't have the biggest colour palette or the most colours on screen. Um, it was still, I, I was used to Amiga games, which generally had 32 colours, except in, you know, certain specific modes and, and circumstances. So um, the combination of large sprites like Strider Hiryu, uh, or even, you know, even the characters in Streets of Rage 2 uh, with the with the amount of colors that they could have f- making up these sprites did make it feel, you know, very, very high tech at the time. And I, and I still, you know, I'm obviously us three here, we're all big retro gamers, but I, I still think that some of the very best mega drive games still look absolutely beautiful. Like they're not, it's not that they're, you know, any technically pushing back boundaries anymore, but just on a pure aesthetic level, there's some really, you know, particularly from, uh, Sega's own many studios, the many, uh, departments that they had working on different games there some of those graphics i still think are just simply delightful cast of illusion in particular uh, in fact that whole trilogy um and yeah streets of rage 2 obviously is another example. shinobi shinobi 3 in particular oh yeah yeah that's one that does get re-released unlike the second game which often doesn't because of the whole weird <laughs> there were like how many different oh. versions of that game with different uh different copyright issues infringed um they just kind of yeah went mad with including things that they really shouldn't have been including um yeah we must of course also talk about the audio in isolation because i think this is perhaps the most distinctive aspect mm-hmm. of the mega drive uh, magical isopod from the forum says i really want to highlight the power of the genesis sound chip while many a developer had no clue how to use the yamaha ym2612 some of the absolute best video game soundtracks have come from the genesis and i largely credit this to world crushing bass this thing could produce. While the SNES sound chip lent well to reverb heavy symphonic music, the Genesis had this dread-inducing capacity for deep crunchy bass that lent itself well to EDM house and heavy metal style soundscapes. Where a punch might make a thwack sound on the Super Nintendo, it made a heavy thunk sound on the Genesis. An explosion on the SNES might annoy your mum, but an explosion on the Genesis would shake your house. To this day, I have a deep appreciation for the sound that Genesis can produce to the point where I've started developing my own electronic music with a sort of deep bass and crunchy distortion one would expect a stock Genesis to produce. Many slam the Genesis for sounding otherworldly and unusual, but that's precisely the reason it's so beloved to me. Gentlemen. Yes. Totally agree. Yeah. 
I'm a big fan of the sound myself. I actually wrote a uh, college paper on on the uh, YM2612. <laughs> so uh, I can't <laughs> wow. remember everything that I put in it now. I mean, this is going back like 15, 16 years. But uh, but yeah, I I love it to bits and wanted to find out every little thing about it, especially this is a time when um, emulators hadn't quite got it right and people were trying to figure out if you could have a uh, VST, you know, VST synths, like um, plugins for audio software. Yeah. Mm. If you could have one of those that sounded just like a Mega Drive. So I found it all quite exciting being on the cusp of that and, yeah, wrote about it and dived deep into it. And um, and like Magical Isopod says, uh, I make electronic music myself and uh, people do say, hey, that sounds a bit Mega Drive-y. So I suppose yep. <laughs> it's partly intended and then partly, I guess, just because those are the sounds that I grew up with and like making. And you also DJ, and uh, you've been known to bust out the odd Mega Drive track. Yeah, yeah, I love sneaking in Mega Drive tracks to DJ sets. Yeah, that's kind of my sneaky, geeky thing. John, you're also a fan of the quite unique sound of this console? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it's definitely something that needs to be used in the right hands. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the thing about it that's interesting is, you know, it's a synth chip versus, well, there's also those little samples you can use, but uh, the Super Nintendo got a lot of um, attention back then because it was all sample-based. Mm-hmm. But you listen to it now, and it's a lot of games are kind of muddy, and it's a it's yeah. a lower frequency rate, yeah, and it doesn't hold up as well. The pitch is a little bit weird on some games, whereas I feel like the Genesis has aged really well, mm. and its top sounding games have this super crisp, clean sound to them, with of course the crunchy bass that is quite pleasing to the ear. And I mean, some of the I think the best soundtracks often use one of the PCM channels to do like a nice crunchy drum. Mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously Yuzo Koshiro did a lot of that. Of the course. Sonic games had that. Um, but there was just some really impressive work on there. And, uh, you know, composers like, uh, do you remember Jesper Kidd? Yes. Yeah. Uh, he, he did a lot of work on the Mega Drive early on. Like his, his soundtrack to The Adventures of Batman and Robin mm. is this ridiculously like... It doesn't fit Batman at all, but it's this like super <laughs> yeah. atmospheric, super deep soundtrack. Each song is like seven or eight minutes long before it loops, something like that. It's an absolutely ridiculous soundtrack, but it, I believe it, it goes where he wanted so many channels for music that they only left just just barely enough for sound effects. So it's pretty much a soundtrack heavy game <laughs> for that reason. Of course, the budget for sound, obviously, you know, uh, mus- game musicians, computer game musicians used to talk about the budget in terms of a K, you know, a number of K that they would be left mm. over to, to write a, a soundtrack in. But now the budget was maybe larger in terms of K, but of course there was potentially a cost attached to it. If, the, if the, you know, depending on the, the size of the cartridge that was, uh, they were probably still only al- ever allocated a certain amount. But I wonder if in the case of like Streets of Rage 2, was it like, well, this soundtrack is clearly, you know, one of the most amazing things we've ever heard. Have another have another four megabits. <laughs> I don't know. I, don't, I can't even begin to wonder how they sort of uh, budgeted that stuff out. Especially as there's so many speech samples in Streets of Rage as yes, well for things exactly. outside of the music. Yeah. So the thing about writing music back in that day is that you really needed to be a programmer and a musician. Yeah. So these guys were programming for this hardware, which I think really, it really created some interesting things. Whereas, so there are some notoriously bad sounding games on the system. And I can't recall the name of it right now, but there was a package created to allow people to more easily create music for the system it was especially used in north america yeah gems it's and created yes by that's, that's the one 
and that that can be used to good effect i believe but it's also especially you think about some of the games that ea produced mm. they have this like really nasty metallic sound that's just kind yeah. of unpleasant and they're not using pcm drums or anything like that and it's just yeah. it's very harsh and that's the kind of stuff I think people think of when they first think of the Mega Drive. But in reality, there is, you know, it's a place where a lot of great composers really started to take off. Like the um, Michiru Yamane, the composer of uh, Castlevania Symphony of the Night, right? Like yeah. she did the Castlevania game on there. I think she worked on one of the Rocket Knight Adventure games. Yeah. And, you know, Konami was there when they finally joined the Mega Drive. So they did some awesome work on there mm. and it was a little bit closer in sound to their actual arcade hardware. Not quite as capable, yeah. but it did have that similar synth to it. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, you know, it's just one of those things where if you pick the wrong game, you're getting a bad experience. <laughs> it's actually really interesting. That's brought back another memory of talking about the friend who bought the, the import mega drive that who I, the, the one I eventually bought of him when he first bought it, we were at work and uh, there was no TV at work. There was nothing to plug it into, but he was so excited about his new purchase because it had a meg- um, it has the, the, the headphone jack on the front, basically, which is also what you plugged uh, the audio leaded of the sound. Oh, yes. uh, the, uh, yeah, the audio part, of the, uh, the scart lead into, um, but he plugged it through with a, you know, with just like a regular coaxial cable or whatever it was to uh to the sound system of the of the burger bar in which we were working so we were listening <laughs> to the intro music to, to madden um and i was like hang on rob hubbard the amazing the genius rob hubbard who wrote like so many of these astonishing commodore 64 pieces has gone to work for ea in america and this is the best he can do but i kind of didn't realize that it was yeah it was exactly what you were saying john the like the whatever the sound libraries or the software that that they were using for the ea stuff was this really yeah kind of tinny kind of soundscape that um really wasn't showing off rob hubbard's work to the best of his because uh, there were actually some good tunes in there that he wrote for things like pga tour golf but they just didn't sound great which was really disappointing exactly um, but before we jump off of sound we have to mention marble madness are you guys familiar with that there's that one conversion of marble madness <laughs> for the system with sound it's it could be described as torture i suppose wow. it's, it is the worst sounding thing out on that system oh man it's that's so sad borderline unplayable I adore the soundtrack. The original arcade soundtrack to Marble sure. Madness is one of, <laughs> uh, and it sounds astonishing on on that that Atari hardware. And weirdly, I was actually I was about to say that era of Atari hardware, they had that real that sort of twangy MIDI electronic guitar sound sure. in things like Seven Twenty and Marble Madness at certain points as well. So you would think it would have translated really well to the Mega Drive. So what happened? I, it was just a bad port. Just a bad <laughs> port. Straightforward. Bad old port. Uh, back to Magical Isopod for some more memories. He says, or she, could be she. My first video game console was the Sega Genesis. Being of limited financial means and living in northern Ontario, my parents bought my brother and I a used Model 2 Genesis for Christmas 1995. It came with copies of Thunder Force 2 and Sonic the Hedgehog. Thunder Force 2 turned out to be far too obtuse a game for my five-year-old mind, but Sonic was a game that my entire family dedicated a good amount of time to completing. 
I distinctly remember the sheer joy and astonishment upon coming home from school to find my mum had gotten all the way to Starlight Zone with four lives remaining. As a child, some of my favourite titles included the Sonic series, Taz Escape from Mars, Lemmings 2, Super Street Fighter 2 and Vector Man. But strangely, my love of the Genesis didn't really cement itself until much later in life. I purchased Sonic's Ultimate Genesis collection on PS3 when I was 18 and mistakenly believed my Genesis collection at that point was sufficiently complete. However, due to the likes of the classic game room and other YouTube channels, I discovered a litany of phenomenal Genesis games I had no prior knowledge of. Some of my all-time favourites I had almost no awareness of until I was well into my 20s. Among these are Thunder Force 4, The Adventures of Batman and Robin, Hellfire, Airbuster and Fantasy Star 4. I also obtained a Sega CD around 2015 and discovered a whole other library of great games. The Terminator, Snatcher, Solfeast and Sonic CD being some of the best. And of course, the less said about the parasitic fungus called 32X, the better. Oh, <laughs> well, harsh. We may talk a little more about the 32X. It sounds like John may have maybe the 32X Defense Force. Uh, <laughs> he's certainly well. done some video work <laughs> on that. Um, but one thing we must talk about before we go further is the actual the look of the box. If we're going to do a console special, oh, yeah. now obviously there were models, different, many different models and remodels. But I, at first, I want to start with the original machine, um, my original Japanese machine. Back in 1991, it still looked super cool to me. And for quite a few years after, I thought it looked super cool. Now it looks cool in a retro way. Um, but I love the fact that it was asymmetrical. Uh, it was different. It felt somehow sci-fi. Uh, it said 16-bit on it in big capitals on that Japanese model. And as we said, high-definition graphics, proving that high-definition remains a relative term. Um, but yeah, I loved the look of the console uh, and I hated the remodels that they did. How about you guys, John? Yeah, for me, um, I do prefer the look of the original Model 1 and, of course, the sound as well, which something yeah. we might touch on later. But yeah. yes, the look of the unit, the original unit, it's gorgeous. I It's hard to pick between the different regions, though, mm. because it is the same basic model, but there's the color schemes and some of the lettering is slightly different between yeah. them. So, you know, I guess my nostalgia gets the best of me, and I really like the North American sure. unit. But, you know, they're, they're all great-looking systems. And that volume, uh, the the slider, just an awesome little addition. Yeah. I love yeah. it. But then, uh, you know, like Model 2, it's, it's a decent-looking unit, but I feel it lacks a lot of the personality of the original. Totally, and if you actually... Totally, yeah. Exactly, yeah. But if you actually feel the thing and you're cleaning these up you realize the plastic quality took a huge nosedive <laughs> the original mega drive is a gorgeous machine and if you polish it up nicely they can look basically brand new with with the right finish on it and they, it just feels really sturdy it's a beautiful box yeah whereas the later units they're just cheap yeah like they're not awful but they're they feel cheap it's what happens with uh, almost every uh, console sure, cycle, exactly. I guess, to an extent. But um, yeah, see, I do, I, I did like my original one, and it has the the Japanese one has the sort of um, is it like maroonish, maybe yes, dark pink exactly. flash, yeah. and um, and that that made it a little bit extra cool. Um, but it, I, the whole thing did feel it did feel sturdy, but it did also have a, a uniquely plasticky feel. But I don't mean that in a negative way. It felt, you know, again, back in, I know, you know, plastic was already commonplace, but it had a, it felt, it felt kind of, yeah, techy. Like it was cool. The fact was that something so cool. Plastic. It was a smooth, glossy plastic. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Was it uh, intended to look like a CD-ROM, by the way? Because that's just the, it's just on the cusp of when we were hearing about CD-ROMs being a thing. And, I do wonder that. Yeah, yeah, it just looks so much like it should take CDs. Yeah, I I did wonder if it was like a precursor of the yeah the sort of the flip top of the PlayStation. Well, and I suppose the things that came, you know, things like the whatever the 3DO and things that came before. Although a lot of those were disc loaders, weren't they? Um, but yes, no, it was it was a cool machine. The, the cartridges, like I can still remember the exact. I, I haven't had my own u- unit for years, but I can remember the exact noise that dropping a Mega Drive cart onto the Mega Drive sounds like plastic on plastic. Mm. They're sli- both slightly hollow, but um, but but yeah, not not cheap for all that. Alex seventy nine UK has a tale to tell of his first Mega Drive. He says, the Sega Mega Drive was the first console I ever bought with my own money. My brother and I had survived on our master system well into the 16-bit era, and I remember people at school making fun of us because we still only had a master system. Kids are cruel, aren't they? So with my 14th birthday coming up, I decided to ask everyone for money so that we could finally catch up and play all these incredible-looking games everyone else was talking about. I'd been eyeing up a Mega Drive package with Streets of Rage during the run-up to my birthday. It was in Woolies for £120 and it had my name all over it. On my birthday, I excitedly counted up my money. I had exactly £120. This was going to be the best day ever. My mum didn't want me taking all that money to school, so she said she'd meet me up in town after I finished and come to the shop with me. Not very cool, but I didn't care. It was Mega Drive day. I spent all day telling my friends I was finally getting a Mega Drive and was almost bursting with excitement all day long. Half three eventually came and I got the bus into town and met up with my mum. We headed straight to Woolworths and it was gone. It wasn't there. My Mega Drive had gone. I could have cried genuinely. I was gutted. I didn't know what to do. We asked someone in the shop and they went out to look at the back, but they didn't have any more stock. There wasn't anywhere else to go. There was a WH Smith's in town at the time, but I'd scoped that place out already before my birthday. They sold Mega Drive, sure, but the bundles they had in stock were too expensive. I only had £120, and my parents weren't really in a position to be giving me a load more cash they'd already given me for my birthday. But we went to check anyway, just to confirm what I already knew. No good. Well, that's that then. No new console. Home for tea, then either telling my friends what happened or pretending I got one and lying about it. Neither option seemed particularly attractive. On the way home, my mum said she thought of one more place we could look. There was another Woolworths about 30 minutes away, a couple of towns away. I didn't get my hopes up, but we went anyway. I walked into the cho- into the shop feeling miserable. I made my way over to the game section. They had a few different Mega Drive bundles, £160, £140, £99, £99.99? I mean, sure, it came with Wrestle War, but it was a Mega Drive and I could afford it. I grabbed the box, turned around with a moronic grin to my mum. There's one here. It's ninety nine ninety nine. Well, you better get it then, hadn't you, she said. I felt sick with excitement all the way home, and my brother and I spent the entire evening convincing ourselves that Wrestle War was actually probably one of the best games we'd ever played. I finally had a Mega Drive, and the rest is history. That story Beautiful. warms my heart. I love that. <laughs> Wrestle War was uh, one of those games that looked great in screenshots, because again, it had those... <laughs> big sprites and then as soon as you yeah. it moved <laughs> it all broke apart yeah and I, I never liked wrestling games but um i can imagine there was that there was an appeal there were some pretty huge uh pretty huge wrestling uh type franchises around at the time weren't there on the consoles 
Um, we've sort of talked a little about the revisions already. Um, we Obviously, we don't want to go through and discuss every minute tweak that Sega made, but suffice to say, it is a minefield for the collector. John, you may be more keenly aware of this than, than yes. us. Um, I don't How many different Mega Drive units do you own? Do you know? Um, I think I have about five or six. Yeah. And what I are have, the key um, differences? So I have uh, an American uh, Model 1, a PAL Model 1, um, a new in-box Japanese Mega Drive 2, and a new in-box PAL Asian Mega Drive 2. Oh, cool. Um, a couple American Mega Drive 2s. Right. And, you know, then all the add-ons and such. So I never got into the 3. No. And I don't have the multi mega or the wonder mega, <laughs> although I would love them all. But so, the main differences come down to the video chip uh, or the video output quality, yeah, and the sound. And uh, it is a minefield because there are so many variations mm. to the point where I don't know. I'm off the top of my head, like 15, 20 different motherboards out there over the years. Something it's 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 a lot. Yeah. And some of them sound great. A lot of the early high definition graphics models have an excellent version of the 2612 in there. But they kind of dropped the ball shortly after that. And the very late model ones and a lot of the model twos, they just sound terrible. Yeah. And I think I did a comparison of this in a recent video. Mm. And essentially, what you lose is clarity. And uh, some of the pitch of certain sound effects and things can be a little bit off. Whereas like a Model 1 is very crisp and clean. It has a very, very sharp, tight bass. Whereas like the worst Model 2s, it's just like this. It sounds kind of, it's just garbled and kind of mm. crunchy, but not in a good way. It's yeah. it's muffled. It's missing the, the high notes. So if you had one of those, I could see why you might not have fond memories of the sound. Mm-hmm so that's yeah. kind of that's kind of the big issue whereas i think like so like the sega nomad and which i do have one of those uh and some of the other like the multi-mega they have pretty good sound capabilities okay. in them so mm. it's really just certain mainly just certain genesis 2 and some of the late model one units that are the most problematic yeah so I guess uh, if you were going to go and buy one now, would it be actually one of the early Japanese ones? You could have RGB SCAR output should... if your TV still accepts that. You get the best sound possible. Yeah, most of the optimal? time, those are a safe one to look for, especially if you can if you get a Japanese one and you do sort of the region mod on yeah. it to avoid um, some of the, especially with the later games where they implemented locking. Yeah, That's a great system, especially because the cartridges are different for Japan, as I think we've mentioned. Yeah, uh, They're larger. Yes. So a Japanese Mega Drive can accept carts from all regions without modification, whereas the other systems require some work to be done to fit the cart in there. Although there is one solution for non-region locked games that I've used, which is the 32X, ah, which right. has a larger cartridge slot by default. Yeah. And if you just kind of like... Uh, rub away a little bit of the edge, plastic edge, just mm. a tiny bit, mm. then regular Japanese Mega Drive games fit in there like a glove. And that's kind nice. of a way around it. So Yeah, so my as I mentioned, my my initial one that was already imported and secondhand and, and modded, the I never I didn't even notice really when, when I was playing it around my friends, but I got it when I got it home I noticed that the actual the sides of the cartridge slot had been uh, kind of hacked away and uh, you know in a, a pretty 
rough roughshod fashion. Interesting. Uh, but pfft, yeah, um, there was also there was a little uh, peg, wasn't there? I think it was. I think maybe that was what had been removed. There was a little like a uh, ratchet inside. That, yeah, like a little like, arm cl- that went into the side of the cartridge. Yeah. Like so lock. I think that yeah. had been taken out. I think that's why they'd been in there. Um, I used a nail file for mine, holding the Mega Drive upside down with the cartridge slot open. <laughs> right. <laughs> Superb. And um, yeah, and you could, like, regardless of uh, what uh, region the console was, it would detect what region the cart was and display the right language, I think. Is that right? Yeah. So there's essentially a series of jumpers on the motherboard that you kind of toggle between 50 or 60 hertz and Asia and uh, I guess the West. Yeah. And the combination of those is how you select it. But a lot of early games are in fact, region free, like the revenge of Shinobi, for instance, is an issue. And there's a lot of games like this, but mm. the ROM on the cart mm-hmm. is the same in all regions. Oh, okay. So if you insert that into a Japanese system, you're going to get a different title screen. Yep. I think it's the super Shinobi for that. That's one. right. Yeah. You put it into an American or a PAL unit, you get a different screen there. Yeah. And it just, it just works, which is kind of a cool thing. Very cool. But, uh, on the regional stuff. So all of these, the main, Model 1s and Model 2s support RGB SCART out of the box, including yep. North American units. Mm. So it's no problem at all to use that on a, you know, yeah. either a scaler or like a PVM or any sort of TV that can accept RGB SCART. Mm. And there are some variations between the different models as well, especially some of the earlier models. In fact, there's there can be sort of jail bars, but there's, which is essentially like repeating line, vertical line patterns that you can kind of catch, especially visible in RGB. Mm. Which you can mm. work around, like I off the top of my head, I think it's as simple as cutting the composite video line, the trace on the motherboard, something All like right. that. Whereas you disable composite video, but if you're not using it anyway, it's not really a big deal. And the result then is you get a super clean RGB output. Yeah. So, you know, it's the main thing though to keep an eye out. I found, especially with the modding stuff, uh, I modded my POW unit, and mm. because it uses the the crystal oscillator for the PAL territory. If you switch it to 60 Hertz, you get a micro stutter every like so many frames. Mm. So even though you can run it at 60 Hertz, it's not quite the same as a real NTSC system without changing the crystal. So I kind of feel like a a PAL system is not the best place to start from for modding. No. Right. Unless you're willing to go all the way. (laughs) Sure. Wow. Yeah. That's some superb detail. But yes, it does sound to me like if I was going to, um, and, and I do have a dream to have a kind of collection like yours again someday, John, but uh, time and space and money haven't allowed it. But um, of course, <laughs> I would love a, uh, yeah, like, a, I guess I would want an early, early Japanese console with a with a, a 50, 60 hertz switch, maybe an HDMI converter. Is that something you approve of? If uh, um, to, to I, I'm not a fan of no. those myself, okay. only because I feel like just using an external solution is the way to go. Yeah. Personally, I play everything on a PVM still, the Sony PVM CRT monitors. Yeah. I think it looks best there. Yeah. But I do use one of the uh, G-SCART switches, which is just that fantastic... SCART switcher. It's an automatic SCART switcher. Mm. It has two outputs on it. So I send one to the TV and then one either to my open source scan converter or the frame meister, which are of two. Course. Well, it's an upscaler and a line doubler, the two units. But the idea is that those can output to your modern television and they look great. And by doing it that way, uh, you don't have to modify your system or do anything there. It's just a stock machine that you can plug into the setup and it'll just work and look great. Beautiful. 
there's lots of guides out there, folks, if if this is something yes. that interests you. But yes, as John says, do be cautious. It is a minefield. Um, and obviously, yeah, if you want to buy from an online provider, make sure it's one that's got a lot of nice uh, trust pilot reviews or whatever else. Make sure you're shopping from from the right people. And this is just scratching the surface of all of this. Yes. You really you do want to do some research if you're going to jump into this before picking the model for you if you care about video and sound quality yes absolutely or you can just go down your local uh, secondhand shop and buy whatever the one they've got in and just enjoy it and just play like you did back in the day and not care about that <laughs> stuff but uh, exactly but we we do <laughs> um one other item i wanted to mention at this point was the neptune which never was released but this was going to be the unit which incorporated the extra power of the 32x uh, sadly yes. didn't happen um, so you are stuck with your monstrosity tower that we'll come on to later. I wanted to talk about the marketing. Uh, John and I were talking a little about the um, the sort of the way that the console was pitched earlier. Um, Welcome to the next level was a uh, was a slogan that arrived in uh, a few years after the Mega Drive came out. Uh, obviously, famously in America, and I think people are aware of this one genesis does what nintendo don't um <laughs> was you know very american style advertising where it was a direct throwdown to their competitors you don't really get that in europe and well certainly not in the uk so much it does happen we had do me a favor plug me into a sega which i think goes back as far as the master system and uh, to be this good takes ages to be this good oh, yes. takes sega that was everywhere and uh, we also had our, uh, I don't know, I'd see this one wouldn't have gone down in America, I don't think so. Well, we had a series of saucy adverts in Lads Magazine things, would you say, Dan? Is that the best way yeah, to describe it? Yeah, like sort it? of seaside postcardy kind of risque stuff in, like, in the back of Viz, if anyone knows Viz comic. Kind of um, sort of carry-on kind of humour almost, wasn't it? Well, I suppose a bit more uh, edgy, ladsy yes, than that. But yeah, it was boring. very pitched for, if you were pitching an advert for Viz, they pitched them right in the right spot so one that i remember is uh so it's a picture of it's a it's a it's cartoon guy around his waist area uh he's holding like an arcade stick outwards from his crotch he's clearly moving his hand around in a frenzied fashion holding the joystick and the slogan is the more you play with it the harder it gets which doesn't even really make that much sense in a gaming no context but you know that didn't matter it was (laughs) It was, yeah, yeah. Um, you should check out that campaign, John, because, yeah, I'm guessing you didn't have that in America. <laughs> no, we didn't. I think that's the dark souls of um, 90s advertising slogan. Right, right. <laughs> and we also had on TV a very, very famous, uh, I think, well, I say very, very famous. I think um, in gaming circles, this is kind of, yeah, almost iconic to use that word. The Sega Cyber Razor Cut advert. You must remember this, Dan. Yeah, I've watched it um, a few times today just to sort of <laughs> get in the get, mood. Yeah, get into that mood. Um, but yeah, it it just fitted the whole Sega image at the time. Again, like you say, I think the um, that sort of marketing started with the tail end of the Master System, and then yeah, when the Mega Drive rolled around, they went full on for this um, slightly like weird, not 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 weird in a wacky way, weird in a kind of edgy in quote marks kind of way. I've seen it too. It's great. Oh yeah, we did. We did not. We did not have that ever, no. obviously. But seeing it in retrospect, it's pretty awesome. It was cool. <laughs> I have to admit, it was cool. In in so, nineteen ninety, yeah, America was all about. So once Kalinsky came in and they got their new ad agency going, mm. and they really ramped up this attitude where it was kind of like you know, yeah, 
it was just about like how they really poked fun at Nintendo. They kind of poked fun at just like a lot of culture around the 90s and everything. You know, it's like it was a very different thing. So like, you know, there's the one where the kid is like being bullied at school and then he gets a Genesis and then all of a sudden he's like the most popular dude in the class and he's like ordering the bullies around to get him cookies and he like flips up the tray in their face and it's just like, you know, creating this feeling of being like powerful or tough, if you will, which was kind of the opposite of what Nintendo was going for at the time. Yeah. Until they got to their play it loud campaign, Hmm. which, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Direct response, I guess. And it would be remiss of us to talk about Mega Drive Genesis marketing without talking about blast processing, I guess. Mm. This is it fair to say that history has slightly revised what happened here, or, or so blast processing. The term blast processing was a marketing term, but it was based on some kind of technical background to do with the graphics processor's DMA controller. However, because Nintendo or, or it further down the line, it got it was basically scuppered as being pure marketing BS, but originally there was some kind of credence to it. Is that fair? As far as I understand it, it was like, I think it was a matter of somebody looking through one of the development manuals and finding that function in there. Yeah. Not really understanding what it was used for. (laughs) Uh, So I don't, it had nothing to do with what it actually did or what that feature was. They just liked the name. Yeah. We can use that to describe the speed of our system in in a weird roundabout kind of way. It's not, I've always kind of thought it kind of works because you know, the 68,000 in there, it's a pretty good 16 bit CPU <laughs> yeah. and the super NES was kind of weak in that area. Although, you know, we've kind of found out after the fact, a lot of it's just coding errors in the super NES. Like they've eliminated slowdown in so many games yeah. with, with people going back in later, but still, there was this this idea that the, the Genesis was just faster yeah. at fast games. You have all these like super high speed shooters with tons of sprites on the screen, and this just fit right into the marketing. And they absolutely pushed it like crazy. Sometimes in unfair ways, like the whole uh, Mario Kart thing. Have you guys seen that? Not sure. With the so it's a couple drag. It's like a drag race car and like I guess it's like an ice cream truck or some sort of jalopy. They both have a CRT loaded under the back. <laughs> And they show like Mario Kart running on the Super NES and it sort of like putters away from the starting line. And then they pan over to the Genesis playing Sonic and they're like, they start kicking up the super high speed metal style music. Yeah. And then the, the thing just launches off into the distance while the Super NES barely gets past the starting line. Sure. You know, yeah, it's that, just uh, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's very, that um that sort of direct competition uh, anti-advertising is is way bigger in America than it is uh, in the UK. I think I don't know if there are actually laws and rules against it, but it was definitely not the done thing. You do see it now and again. I think there might have been a change in the laws towards the mid to late nineties, right. where you could mention a competitor, but not um, not slander not, them. Yeah, not derogatorily, and it had <laughs> yeah. to be like a direct comparison of features or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting culturally. There were, uh, of course, this was probably the peak era of gaming magazines and publications. I remember, um, so Mean Machines uh, started as a section, it actually started as a Tony Takushi uh, arcade section, I think, and he was also talk about his MSX in CMVG, but later uh, with the likes of uh, Julian Rignall and... uh, John's colleague, uh, Richard Ledbetter, span out into its own Mii Machines entity and then it split into Mii Machines Sega and Nintendo. So obviously Mii Machines Sega was covering Mega Drive stuff. There was also Mega Magazine, which I th- 
I can't remember which publishing was which. I think Mega that was, was future. future. Yeah. Mega Tech was also EMAP as well as Me Machine Sega. I think they had more than one. Um, there was also Mega Power, Mega Action, Mega Drive Advanced Gaming, probably some more in America. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so the main one for us was Sega Visions, which was sort of oh, like right. uh, sanctioned by Sega, I suppose. I did receive that. But really, most of the magazines at the time were multi-formats. Right. You know, EGM. Obviously, EGM was yeah. huge. And, you know, there was others like that. Game Fan was starting to come mm. into existence and really pushing hard on this stuff. And um, it was a d- different time. I've learned a lot about the magazine business in the UK, thanks to Richard. And it just yeah. strikes me at how different uh, things were in a lot of ways. And that it feels to me like the fan base was really connected to the writers and the, the magazine in, in a way that I didn't quite, I never really felt here in the States. At least, you know, I feel like maybe Game Fan is maybe the closest to that, where you kind of felt more of a connection with the writers. But hmm. yeah. The Sega magazine as well, Dan? Uh, yeah, S the Sega magazine was um, Future Publishing's first console magazine and their first official magazine. Yeah, so it was a, a tie-in with Sega themselves. I think it must have been a very small print one at first. You couldn't get it in the shops. It was a sort of subscription-only right. deal. Okay. Uh, then it eventually became something you could get in the shops, and the name changed to Sega Power. Sega Power, I remember, yeah. And then Saturn Power eventually, but that's obviously mm, beyond oh. the scope of this show. Ah, and then, of course, uh, Future also... Uh, or was it EMAP? Who had the, the official... The, yeah, it was EMAP, wasn't it? The official Sega Saturn magazine, and that was uh, Richard, Richard Ledbetter's yes, as well. Yes, exactly. Yeah, amazing Mac as well. Um, and Electric Brain Fanzine, Dan, as well. Yeah, do you remember this? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. Um, so I think it was made just by a couple of people in South London. It was on... Um, like sort of newspaper type paper or like exchange and mark type paper. Right. It was one of those things I could hardly ever find it, but there was one shop in our town down by the station where they'd occasionally get copies of Electric Brain in. And yeah, it wasn't a magazine. It really was a fanzine. Yeah. Uh, You could tell it was done sort of DIY with like Letraceti type type stuff. And um, Hmm. it was black and white. So all of the screenshots were in pure black and white. And Hard it, to make out, I would imagine, because the yeah. contrast was always a right old mess. Yeah. But they did, um, I think they did pride themselves on trying to get the best screenshots they could. They, I think there was even an article about how they did it. Maybe they'd hmm. seen that in other magazines at the time. Fair play to them. How, yeah. how do we do that? But yeah, it was. Um, if you look it up, I think there's at least some bits and bobs archived out there. It's a, it's worth a look as a, as a look at, um, I don't know, pre-internet sort of video game counterculture almost. Mm. Was that pure Mega Drive then? Uh, no, it's, um, but it was sort of pure uh, Japanese console right. news. Wow. Uh, oh. So it covered like the SNES, PC Engine and Mega Drive, I think. Awesome. We should also talk about certainly the controller. Uh, it's um, it's a, a fairly simple device. Uh, they, I guess at this point, because there, there were various issues over the years with the, with the, uh, the the patent for the D-pad being with Nintendo, wasn't there? Hence Sony's mm. weirdness on the the original PlayStation. But at this point, I guess there was was it different enough or or whatever the D-pad on the Mega Drive pad to to uh, not cause any issue. Yeah, I think that's what it was, since it was sort of a circular yeah disc function, an eight way disc yeah. versus the cross D-pad yeah that Nintendo had. So yeah. I think that's how they were able to get around it. But in in actuality, like in, in practical uses, it's it, it not much yeah. different, really. Um, no, not really. Yeah, I remember this being, a, yeah, just a, a pretty nice, comfy pad. Very suited for many, many hours of 
playing uh, the initial rush of games, I eventually upgraded to some third-party Competition Pro six-button controllers when Street Fighter 2 came out. Uh, I also had a a joystick-type joystick, an old-school nine-pin-type two-button joystick, because um, you could plug anything into this if it had two buttons. Uh, you could swap controllers with your Amiga, which is what I had as well at the same time. Um, but generally, you needed two or three buttons for the games. Uh, not everything did, but... Um, sure. Yeah, did you guys like the the standard, the, the Batarang? Yeah, uh, I was a big fan of the original controller. Yeah. I think it's... I still, I still use it, so... Yeah. It's a very comfortable little pad, um, though, honestly, most of the time I just use the six button. Yeah. Which I think is a really small, super nice pad. That's so good, yeah. Yeah, the official one. I never had had an official Sega six button Mega Drive controller. I'd I'd probably still like one. The official one, which is one of those things that has that mode button on it for Mm. some of the older games, specifically like Golden Axe 2, if you boot it up, you have to hold the mode button at start. Otherwise, the button mappings... No, the button mappings wrong. So, like, you press start to attack, and, you know, you can't move left and right properly, and it's it's just kind of a mess. But the mode button takes care of that. Which is, of course, required on the Nomad, I should point out, since that is a six-button yeah. pad built in. Uh, also, I have a weird one. I have the official Sega infrared controllers. Yeah. Have you guys seen those? I saw it when researching this show. Yeah, it looked really cool. Does it function well? It's not bad. I mean, you have to stay line of sight, of course. Yes. But, I mean, it's a, they're really nice six-button pads that feel really comfortable to use. Mm. And, you know, I don't use them that often because I sit close enough with the wire. Yeah. But it's a cool option to have, and they're not bad. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't remember having great luck with like third-party wireless solutions no. back in the day. <laughs> but the Sega one, it's it's pretty good for being infrared. How's the batteries? Uh, it's been a while since I drained <laughs> batteries on it. I don't remember it being terrible. Uh, it's 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 usable. I always used to be not, terrified you know, of of my you know whoever my cohabitant was uh, breaking the line of sight at a crucial moment. I was scared uh, of infrared yes. controllers back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there was uh, there was at least I don't know was there an official multi? I suspect Sega made their own multi tap. Yeah, there um, was for Gauntlet Four and whatever else, a few other things. Bomberman, I guess. Um, there was that arcade power stick we mentioned. Naturally, there was a light gun that, as with the one on the Super Nintendo, came out with a load of terrible pack-in games and not much else used it. You could get lethal enforcers, though, couldn't you? Which uh, was... That was actually a different gun. You, it was the yeah. gun you <laughs> The lethal enforcers, of course it yep. was. Yeah. So the Menacer, yeah. was there any use for the Menacer? <laughs> um, throwing tomatoes in that Toe Jam and Earl spin-off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, Terminator 2, the arcade game. Okay. Oh, yeah. uh, probably Revolution yeah. X in that case. It was a yeah. That's uh, one of one. I think it's in my uh, hall of shame list. Uh, Revolution X. <laughs> Menacer was a bit of a turkey, wasn't it? It was a hideous looking thing. Mm. Um, it was in the era of, whereas I mean, the Lethal Enforcers guns were like pink and blue, so that you couldn't possibly confuse them for real firearms. Um, the Menacer just you couldn't confuse it for for a real firearm because it looked like a like a bath toy or something. <laughs> It was a big mess, yeah. Not great. Uh, I don't have one of those, but I do have the Justifier that Dan mentioned. Nice. Just a blue one, but it's great for lethal enforcers, but also uh, you can use it with Snatcher. Oh. On, you have the Mega CD for those uh, light gun sections. Okay, now that's, that. You know, it's kind of a, a cool little bonus. That is cool. <laughs> uh, and w- again, something that we have to mention, the Activator 
the infrared full body motion <laughs> controller was this this was like semi official was it second party or so although sega put their name to it it was obviously this is before the wii uh by many years uh it was a an octagon that you laid on the floor and the idea was that you would play it never came out in the uk i don't think it was no. it did come out but it was the idea was you would break it was infrared again i think possibly and you would break uh, yeah. you would break the line of sight on the d-pad directions and it would mirror your controls on screen it looked like the worst thing ever but i never got to try it i think john so. michel jean liked it very yeah much like <laughs> it was like one of his laser harps yeah <laughs> it was a, a really terrible because like how the idea because basically you're, you're translating say upright so you're walking on streets of rage you're walking upright on the screen so you're just holding your arm out up you know, at a 45 degree angle or whatever. Yeah, or that your d- foot, I suppose, you could kind or your of... your foot. That doesn't feel... It. Yeah, it wouldn't be right at all, would it? No. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's your, your unofficial <laughs> stick. Oh, and the, um, the virtual reality headset that never made it as well. That's yes, same. 1992 concept for virtual reality. <laughs> now, there's given... some screenshots, and I think there's even videos, aren't there, of... Um, at least some basic prototypes of games. Is it the same year as virtuality, the arcade... I think it might be just after that pterodactyl game. I think it's when um, <laughs> VR was sort of the big thing in people's minds. And uh, yeah, yeah. And, and Atari was working on one for the Jaguar too. Ooh, and, wow, uh, there is there are real prototypes out there. Yeah, right? so that that one is functional. And yeah, and people are still buying prototype VRs to this day. Only now it's on PlayStation. That's oh. some kind of burn. Um, cheat cartridges. <laughs> Uh, I never bought these. I never bought into this whole scene, this culture, although even though I was aware that there was more to do with them than just cheating, you could muck around with your games and have fun effects. Did either of you have either an action replay or a game genie? I had the game genie and I mostly use it. Like you said, I didn't really use it for cheats so much as um, doing odd things, mostly in Street Fighter. I think I'd read in a magazine that you could uh, do like air fireballs and uh, change the colours of the characters and do all sorts mm. of odd things. Make your own thing called gold, rainbow edition. Gold Ken or Gold Ryu. And they weren't really gold. All you were doing was like turning the <laughs> sprite yellow. With uh, <laughs> I think that's pretty much all you were doing. But to awesome. my mind, it felt like you were playing a golden version of the character, like those um, arcade bootlegs <laughs> we talked about before. Um, but yeah, I used to use it for odd little tricks like that. And then sometimes just trying out random codes just to see if it would do anything. Mm. Um, most of the time it would just either crash or not do anything at all. But um, I seem to remember Mortal Kombat being quite good for just odd glitches that you could find, like where like headless... Oh, well, there's plenty of headless characters in Mortal Kombat anyway, but you know what I mean? Uh, like sort yeah. of sprites sort of um, being broken up. And I used to quite enjoy uh, yeah, just messing about, kind of not hacking, but to my young mind, kind of tinkering with my games. And you can make the blood go red again. Oh, yeah. But you could, <laughs> we could do that anyway, couldn't you? You could. Yeah. Abacab B. Yeah. Yeah, or by resting a 2P on the top of the cartridge, if you believe the April Fool that they had in the <laughs> machines. Uh, do you have cheat cartridges in your collection, John, now or then? Uh, that is one thing I do not have at all. No. I've not. I've messed with them before on the NES, but not really after that. No. So we mentioned the Master System Converter, backwards compatibility at a price. Basically, mm-hmm. the Master System Converter had the whole chipset of the Master System in it, give or take, I think. It was just yeah. It was the entire thing. It's just uh, the the converter just to pass through. Yeah, that's what I figured. Uh, Did that one have its own power supply unit? Nope. 
that one didn't need a power so. supply. A lot of the other things did, right? <laughs> yeah, such as uh, Mega CD. Yes, yes. Did you guys own those back in the day or at all? I didn't have one. Um, it was expe- They were expensive. I think they were like were they four hundred pounds when they came out over here, Dan. I think maybe two fifty or something around that. But yeah, it was yeah pretty expensive from what I remember. Yeah, the 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 only th- see, I wasn't convinced by the new wave of FMV type gaming. So things like Sewer Shark and Road Avenger looked rubbish to me, other than they looked like cartoons, but. Thunderhawk was tempting and Final Fight, the mega CD version of that, were tempting. But um, yeah, I know there are a few good reasons to have one, John. You, you, I'm sure you can sing sing the praises of uh, some key titles for the mega CD. Yeah, so I do have a mega CD now or a Sega CD. Yeah. I did not when I was younger, no. but I did have a friend that had one. Mm. So I had some experience with it and was pretty blown away, mm. mainly by CD Redbook Audio. Sega CD does have some really great games on it. Obviously, I'm a big fan of Sonic CD. You got yep. a nice port of Snatcher on there, the only English release of Snatcher. Very true. There's the excellent, um, yeah, you already said Final Fight CD is great. There's Robo yeah. Aleste, which is kind of, you mm. know, it's pseudo sequel to Musha. It's part of the Aleste series. Yeah. Uh, there's Popful Mail. In fact, Working Designs kind of got, well, it didn't get its start there. It was also on the Turbo Graphics, but. Working Designs did a lot of great stuff on there. The two Lunar games, you yeah. know, Popful Mail and the like, those were awesome. Mm. awesome I really like that game Switch. Um, I mean, there's not much yes. to it. It's just a basic point and click. But the, super weird yeah, game. Yeah, but yeah. Yes. It's lovely surreal humor. That's that. a cool one. The, the the main thing to talk about, I guess, is the the hardware pushing one. So like Core Design over there yeah. was uh, doing some amazing stuff on there. And I think the most impressive game they released was Soul Star. Oh, you guys right. played that? Yeah, superb soundtrack as well. Yeah, so Soul Star is one of the few games that really takes advantage of the extra ASIC chip uh, included in the hardware. Right. So you've got all kinds of cool scaling and rotation and pseudo 3D effects. Like it's stuff that is reminiscent of Galaxy Force 2 almost in the arcade. Like not that advanced, mm. but it's heading in that direction. And it's a hugely more impressive game than any of the um, conversions to the regular Mega Drive. Yeah from those types of games. So it really felt truly 3D. But kind of the big flaw, I guess, with the system is that, you know, the bus that it communicates through Mm. and the way the hardware kind of functions, you can't really take advantage of those chips to the degree that I would have liked to have seen. So performance isn't isn't all that smooth. Like, it's hard to get a a fast frame rate with that chip. Yeah. Slow loading, too. There's slow loading. But on the other hand, they added in another chip for audio. There was this Rico sound chip Mm. that could do more PCM channels. And one of the fun things I always like to look at was, uh, so like Sonic CD, right? The the present, the future music and all that. That's all just straight red book audio read from the CD. But all the past tracks are played back using that Rico sound chip. So they're not just digital audio tracks played back. It's... It's actually like sample based, kind of like the Super NES, but it sounds even better than that. So if you use all of the different sound chips between those two systems together, you can create some incredibly rich music and sound effects. That's just 
absolutely blows away anything else at the time. Hmm. Yeah, there's uh, again for the collector, um, there's definitely some some reasons to to add one to your collection. Uh, some people wouldn't say the same about the 32x, but seeing as you did a two part video. Uh, in which you played every single 32x game, of which there were what, like 30 odd or something like that. Yeah, something like uh, that. It's low. <laughs> as I say, do you want to come out to bat for the 32x as a worthwhile add-on? Um, because I, I think the feeling was it was expensive and too late, um, and didn't offer enough for for most of us to to want to pony yeah. up the cash. But but actually, I did want to play like the Star Wars game and stuff because I thought it might be cool and Doom, but. It's a it's a really neat system mm. to get your hands on now mm-hmm. uh, after the fact because there are there's some cool stuff on there. There's really nice ports of Space Harrier and Afterburner Two on there. There's Star Wars Arcade. There's an excellent port of Virtua Fighter. Mm. Uh, you've got you know uh, Shadow Squadron was quite impressive. Uh, Knuckles Chaotix isn't amazing, but it looks great and it's. A fascinating game to play. There's Virtua Racing Deluxe. Yeah, of course. Which I think is one of the best home versions of that, mm. actually. Mm. There's a reasonable but not amazing port of Doom. There, you know, stuff like that. Like nothing there's nothing huge on there aside from maybe like Golf Magazine presents 36 Great Holes starring Fred Couples. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, aside from that that's like uh, <laughs> that's like crisscross make my video on the mega C D, you know. You can, oh, baby, gotta, yeah, gotta be now in, we're talking. <laughs> it's gotta be in your collection. Uh Dan, were you ever tempted by the thirty two X? Did you did you pony up for one? I was really looking forward to it <laughs> before yeah. its launch. When I saw the um the screens of Star Wars arcade and um there was a preview of because the yeah. that version of virtual racing is just so sort of content complete compared to Oh yeah, most yeah. other versions, right? It's, um, mm. And then the machine came along, and it was fairly expensive. And I think it was around that point where you could go and see sort of the Saturn in import shops in London, and yeah. mm. Virtua Fighter on that was just, to my mind at the time, mind-boggling. And people were starting to talk about the PlayStation. I don't think it was actually out at that point, but people were yeah. certainly looking forward to it being on its way. So yeah, never bought into it. But I was. It's one of those things that I thought I would have bought. And then yeah. just never did. I hold off. I think for they ages. overpriced it. Maybe they had to, but I think if it had been a, a if it had been more of a impulse purchase price rather than a blimey, that's like buying a new console kind of price. Uh, maybe it would have kept the Mega Drive going exactly. a little longer. But as you say, at this point, we didn't know that like the launch version of Daytona for the Saturn was going to be good, but not anywhere near as good as we imagined it to be in our minds uh, we were kind of expecting like an arcade near arcade perfect version of daytona and stuff like that so the 32x was a bit of a hard sell at this at the, the point that it mm-hmm. arrived i think it also wasn't especially easy to find i don't think i don't think it had a huge um production run or uh, no mega drive least... was already fighting for shelf space at this point yeah i think um yep, super nintendo yep. had already kind of overtaken and yeah I do wish I'd picked one up when they were in Dixon's knocked down for very cheap towards the end, though. Yeah, same with the um, the Jaguar and the Knights pack that in HMV for being sold off for like oh, five yes. pounds. There are so many like, ah, oh, so many horror moments of I really should have, yeah, should have got to the shop that day. Um, there were various other obscure add-ons. Uh, we don't need to spend a lot of time on these, but uh, in Japan, there was a Mega CD karaoke set with a little microphone and a speaker, as you'd expect. There was the uh, a Mega modem as well, of course, for the for the online service in Japan that started in 1990, an online service. I know they'd already done it with 
you know, um, even 8-bit, I think there, there have been some online stuff. But uh, some of the games like uh, Fatal Labyrinth and Flicky, I think, made their debuts on in the online service. The Mega Modem. Um, I'm I guessing it's not like the, right. the Dreamcast. You can um, still uh, kind of tap into the the Dreamnet. There's some great videos of people kind of going on to broken versions of the uh, of, or just getting online basically on on the Dreamcast. But I doubt you can do that on the Mega Drive now. <laughs> A couple uh, related to that. Did you guys have the X Band uh, modem over no, there? No, I don't think. Don't think we. I, it, I remember it existing, but. It wasn't. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was just an accessible. online service thing yeah. for the Genesis and the Super NES mm. that let you play some games online. Mm. I never actually used it myself, but I don't think it was great. No, <laughs> but Baby Steps and all that. The Sega uh, Channel is another one that's kind of related to that as well, isn't it? Right. Yep. What was the Sega exactly. Channel? I was just thinking about that. Um, so yeah, John's probably no. John's probably best to explain this because you you'd know way, way more about it being from the country where you actually had it. So that same friend of mine that had all his consoles also subscribed to the Sega Channel, yep. which yep. was essentially a service through your cable provider, I believe, uh. that would plug into a special cartridge, and you could browse uh, their selection. I think it was like limited per month, and like essentially you would. Yeah, yeah. You would kind of choose the game to play, and it would download onto the uh, the ROM chip, mm. the rewritable ROM chip mm-hmm. inside the cartridge. I th- I don't think it actually stored it. Maybe it was just like if you powered it off, you lost it. I I don't remember yeah. actually. But either way, you know, the idea was okay. You hop onto the service, you download some games on there, and you play them through this subscription service. And pretty amazing. Uh, it was it Head was cool time. at the time. Yeah. But it also meant that some games that were only released exclusively on that service, like the Mega Man games, they did, they did that port of Mega Man 1, 2, and 3, wow. which isn't, isn't great, mind sure. you. And that does have a retail release, I think, in Europe and Japan. Mm. Hmm. But in North America, that was exclusive to the Sega channel, so we never got a box version of it. Ooh, some collectible stuff right there. The Mega Jet was a uh, on onboard plane uh, way of playing Mega Drive mm-hmm. games, or I think it actually precursor to the Nomad. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, there was the. I remember seeing screenshots of the Amstrad Mega PC, oh. uh, which was a PC with a Mega Drive <laughs> chipset, sort of just crammed in there and a yeah, cartridge mm-hmm. slot. Basically, if you, if you um, opened the cartridge slot, it literally shut down all function of the PC. Oh. Uh, so you had <laughs> okay. you, you had either the floppy drive showing. And no cartridge slot showing, and then you could use it as a PC, or you'd um, push up the like a little <laughs> not a flap but a sliding yeah. thing on the front, and then Amazing. that would turn it into a Mega Drive. But there were it, it was literally just a, a Mega Drive and and a PC in the same box that weren't in any way related. Did it was it did it have a dedicated monitor? Not that I know of. I only saw one in a computer shop, so I always assumed it was just plugged into any PC. I wonder monitor. what the visual display was like going into a if it was like. VGA or something that could have been amazing. I'm sure it, I'd assume it was probably like a multi-sync kind of monitor. Yeah, that could do 15 kilohertz or 32 kilohertz. Yeah, probably. Yeah, <laughs> there were a few variants of the the Mega CD idea. Uh, sorry, Mega PC idea, I should say, mm-hmm. and a few other obscure things that I just seen the names of that I know nothing about. The Terra Drive, the Fire Core, and the Laser Active. <laughs> I don't know. The Laser Active the was an amazing was the thing. Japanese equivalent of the Mega PC idea. 
Yes, uh, and they always sounded right. so exciting when we used to read about it in Mega, um, Mega Drive magazines because obviously <laughs> terror. We knew what a terabyte was. We knew um, I, I had a friend whose brother worked in computers and he told us oh, what right. a terabyte was, and well, it just blew our minds how impossible. big that <laughs> that was. So we thought the terror drive must be like, well, if a Mega Drive is this good, then a terror drive is going to be like, wow. Yeah. Uh, Laser Active was the pioneer device. It was a combination of a laser disc player with separate modules that you could insert into the front to get Ooh. different functionality, and that included one for Mega Drive carts. Huh. You would essentially insert this module in that had a cart slot on it, and there you go. You're playing, uh, you know, Mega Drive games on a giant laser display sure, why not and it's a it's a super expensive and uncommon device these days yeah. but it's a fascinating machine i bet uh yeah so uh, one of the things i've sort of uh, alluded to is this is a, something that a friend of the show chris o'regan uh, occasionally talks about is the fact that you can because sega were quite good at making many of these devices um, kind of work with one another i'm not sure what the limit is but it is possible to stack together quite a number of these different devices and they all have their own big chunky power brick uh, plug or you know ac adapter kind of thing and you can end up with this really sort of monstrous looking 32x mega cd master system goodness knows what tower of power mm-hmm. make it, and you have a very hot uh, power brick uh, you know uh, multi-plug socket whatever have you, have you dared try this does your insurance cover house fire and theft <laughs> Well, I actually st- I have the Tower of Power set up right now. Oh, awesome. it's active. But uh, thankfully, modern sites are there's people that have actually made replacement power supplies. Oh, brilliant! With sort of wow. like a Hydra setup, so you have three cables running off of one much smaller, more efficient power supply oh, that you great. can just plug into your adapter, and that completely solves the problem. Oh, <laughs> it's almost disappointing, but also much safer. <laughs> <laughs> much safer, yes. You can sleep at exactly. night. Exactly. It's such a shame the Mega CD and 32X um, were only ever used together for FMV games because I imagine that the two of them hand-in-hand working on sort of sprite or polygon-based games could have been something quite interesting. So I actually actually looked into this more. The the main issue there is got to think about the 32X cards have their own uh, mask ROM chips on it, right? They actually act almost as, as memory for the game. But if you take that away and you're just using a CD ROM... That data has to go somewhere, and the 32X itself, which you'd have to work with, doesn't have that much memory on board. Oh. So you you end up with a situation where video works, I think, because you can kind of stream it through what little memory there is, hmm. and it's enough to work with. Where if you were actually loading more complex games from a CD, like where do you actually store it in RAM to make it workable? And that's kind of the main issue, as I understand it, is that there's just not the memory there necessary. It can't address the memory necessary to make it work well. So I don't think there's that much you could have done with it outside Shame. of there's some homebrew games that do things like the 32X game. But if you insert a music CD into the drive, it'll play Redbook Audio from the Sega CD. Right. But I don't think you could do a lot else. Oh, OK. <laughs> Disappointing. Uh, they hadn't thought quite that far ahead, I guess. Yeah, so cartridges, we've talked, uh, the official ones came in different, slightly different 
sizes and shapes uh, depending on region. Uh, they could be as small as 512K, 4 megabits, half a meg, uh, all the way up to 8 megabytes, 64 megabits. I remember seeing labels on the front of later cartridges, things like Super Street Fighter 2 saying 24 megabits, I think. I don't remember seeing larger ones. I'm not sure what the largest games were on the on a standard mm. Mega Drive. Um, but Probably not 64. <laughs> no, I don't think so. That would have been huge. Um, but also, I'm sure that anyone who ever had a Mega Drive will remember that some cartridges looked slightly different, uh, probably most notably Electronic Arts. The reason for this, mm. according to magicbuttons.com, uh, is as follows. It's to do with money. Specifically, EA's problems were twofold, licensing fees and lack of recognition. As Cole Monroe explains, Sega enforced some pretty heavy licensing fees for every game sold. Developers had to pay from $8 to $10 back to Sega. Being a tiny new developer, Electronic Arts couldn't quite pay that. What's more, EA was just too plain small for Sega to consider handing out development kits. When a console launches third-party developers, as well as nowadays game design schools, either receive or buy a development kit on which to make games. This new company called EA, it wasn't that new, I should say, I'm interjecting here, but it had been around since the early 80s, so it, was, it wasn't brand, brand new, as this implies. Uh, back to the article. However, it was never really noticed enough by Sega to give them one. EA wanted in on the Genesis success, that much is sure. So how to go around doing so? Ben Kuchera is able to share the story after he visits the EA office's museum, where one of their old homemade development kits is still on display. Apparently, EA was able to borrow an official development kit from an anonymous other developer and use that time to disassemble, analyze, copy and reassemble it before neatly returning it to its proper owner. Then they hacked together an unofficial Frankenstein they call the Sprobe or the Sega Probe. With that, two problems were solved in one blow. First, EA had a development kit despite its lack of funding and Sega's recognition. Second, they were now capable of illegally making games without needing to pay the licensing fee. However, EA's next move is even more ballsy and it solved the problem of their game's illegal status. They went to Sega to pressure them into recognising their games. Blake J. Harris' Great Console Wars book reconstructs the scene. After Sega's Mike Katz mockingly told EA's William Bing Gordon that if you want a different deal you're going to have to reverse engineer the system, aren't you? EA did just that. So, instead of the usual 8 to $10, Bing proposed this. How about we pay you $2 a cartridge with a cap of $2 million? And so EA went from a poor, unrecognized developer to one of the Genesis' biggest third-party developers. It's hard to imagine now that they were such rebellious underdogs when they are now, as a result of their 90s successes, one of the biggest developers out there. So that's, I guess, the, the yellow bit was just there. They just thought it looked neat. <laughs> and it kind of did, i got to say. Um, and yeah, this was the... This was the system, the generation that took EA from making some really quite interesting and diverse computer games into becoming the people who made annualized sports games. And whether you think that's a good thing or not may depend on your taste as a gamer. <laughs> Another cartridge curiosity is, of course, the J-Cart. Codemasters carts were always a slightly different shape, similar reasons to EA. They didn't get the license. They'd also already um, royally kind of fallen out with other cartridge uh, makers and platform holders with their game genie and so on they codemasters just didn't care um but what a brilliant solution making a, a multi 
tap out of a cartridge. I always thought that was so clever. Mm-hmm. It's a great idea, isn't it? It is. Especially as um, a multi-tap was about £30, £40, pounds, I think. So yeah, it did really did feel like you were getting this huge value. Really, really cool. Yeah, the only issue was that if you had an ever so slightly dodgy cartridge slot, anyone getting overexcited in Micro Machines and tugging on the cartridge <laughs> uh, could cause a reset, which was, uh, which was annoying. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> One other... Uh, chip we mentioned it already the svp so this was kind of sega's answer to the fx chip uh it only got used in the one game is that right the it was basically to help the conversion to the the vanilla mega drive of virtual racing which was a huge Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 3d polygon arcade machine at the time massive deal um pre-ridge racer pre-daytona uh i remember there was a huge uh four was it four was it even eight it was a huge setup anyway on brighton pier and this coming home, I couldn't afford it. They charged £69.99 in the UK for this. So I rented this one and uh, and it, it felt a bit slight as a £70 game, I've got to be honest. Um, mm. But yeah, I guess they just never got the chance to improve on the SVP technology or use it for anything else. There also might have been the thinking that they wanted to push the 32X and maybe not um, exactly yeah. push the polygon side of the Mega Drive. Right. I think that was exactly it. They had the, They decided to do the 32X instead of pushing for this yeah. bespoke hardware mm. in a cartridge just because of the cost. But honestly, I think using the SP, SVP chip more often would have made more sense financially in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. I think- <laughs> but hey, you know, it's an impressive game and it runs at twice the frame rate of Stunt Race FX on Super NES. Very good point. Yeah. It, it would have been curious had they, I, I guess they just thought it wasn't even worth attempting the an SVP version of Virtual Fighter uh, or no. Virtual Fighter 2. In the end, uh, by that point, the 32X, I guess, was already out and about and they had Virtual Fighter. And so they made a, a sort of 2D incarnation of Virtual Fighter 2, <sighs> which you, you can still find on many compilations. Yes. It's weird that they still include it because in a way, because it's like not the best way to play Virtual Fighter 2 but no. <laughs> it's sort of interesting that they went right well we can't make Virtual Fighter 2 which is probably our biggest game at this point so we'll make a kind of Street Fighter-ish version of it I don't know it was all right <laughs> they did okay now is the time to talk games um, obviously uh, we are going to rattle through but we're going to sort of um, base it on kind of genres and types of games and and let's we'll talk about how they affected the life of the mega drive and, and how they uh how they secured its market such as it was back in the day so obviously the first title to talk about was the pack-in title for many of us which was altered beast uh, i didn't have this because i think um my friend had already traded it by the time i bought his mega drive as many people had but as John says, there were some upgrades over the arcade machine, um, but it still wasn't ever, in my view, a wildly enjoyable game. But the sprites no. were big and the mm-hmm. transformation scene looked cool in Altered Beast. Um, Nup Raptor from the forum says every Mega Drive at the time came bundled with Altered Beast. It was in retrospect, of course, terrible. But at the time, the sprites were so big and bold and colourful and for want of a better word, arcadey, that I could forgive all its failings. And it had sampled speech. Rise from your grave. If I get to morph into a were dragon, then no problem, pal. Uh, do you guys still go diving for this on retro compilations, or is it best left to the past? Uh, I'm going to leave it in the past. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't really play it for fun. It's one of those sort of dive into for five minutes to hear the couple of speech samples and then duck out again. Yeah. 
Um, so yes, arcade conversions obviously played a huge part. The arcades were still pretty massive, late 80s, early 90s. Early games came uh, along such as that uh, Golden Axe version, which wasn't arcade perfect graphically, but nope. it did have an extra level. Uh, there's a Golden Axe podcast. Ghouls and Ghosts. That's a special one. A Capcom license, along with Strider and Mercs as well. Uh, I don't know if they did a deal for all three or something like that. Um, all very impressive. Ghouls and Ghosts is worth mentioning because yeah. uh, Yuji Naka worked on that. Yeah. Uh, Did he? Obviously wow. would go on to do Sonic. Yeah. So he was a programmer on Ghouls and Ghosts. Nice. And, you know, it's an awesome port in the sense that it feels responsive. It doesn't look as good as the arcade version or the super graphics version, but it still holds its own. And I think it holds up pretty well. Yeah. Conversion of Mercs, um, Bonanza Brothers, which was Sega's mm. uh, one of Sega's own properties. Bit of an odd, uh, a curio of an IP that's never been followed up, but still has a certain cult cachet and appears on virtually every Mega Drive re-release or compilation that you can find. There were uh, two um, sort of spin-offs as well. I think I've mentioned them on other uh, oh, oh, you WarioWare show. Um, this is my my yeah, ignorance. Yeah. Puzzle and action tant R and um, puzzle and tant? action Ichidant R. Oh um, no! Two yes. mini game collections uh, featuring the Bonanza Brothers. Amazing. Good call. Totally forgotten about those. I can't believe it. Uh, Street Fighter 2 was obviously a huge deal because Street Fighter 2 was already selling Super Nintendos. But it did uh, the 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 arrival of a, a very creditable version Street Fighter Two uh, SCE did prevent me from buying a Super Nintendo for another probably three months <laughs> while I played that version for a bit. <laughs> uh, and it was apart from the the sound, the sampled sound being an issue, it was a pretty pretty excellent game we haven't uh, got time for it here and we've mentioned it in the street fighter sh- 2 show i think but um it's worth uh when we're talking about sound and what have you looking yeah. into the um the beta version of street fighter 2 oh yeah um yeah. which is just champion edition not special champion edition yes but it, it has um closer to the arcade sound so it's just an interesting um yep, they had yep. more room more room to play before they put in the extra stuff i guess um or something um, Mortal Kombat was obviously massive in the early 90s. Um, the There was the whole uh, blood thing, which obviously the Super Nintendo, you did have to use a cheat cart to get blood, but on the Mega Drive, you could just enter a code. So that was kind of uh, added to the Sega's uh, cool... Ca- what was the situation like over mm. there, by the way, for Mortal Kombat? Like, it was huge in North Pretty America, huge. but I wasn't... Was it was it big in the UK? Pretty huge, but not as big as it was in America. I think it's fair to say. But you know, we got we got all the games. We got the movie. Uh, cool. We got the record. <laughs> I think um. three or four of us <laughs> went from school to go and um, get it on Mortal Monday. So it must have been a pretty big thing for yeah. us all to okay. yeah. troop down That's to Dixon's and. Uh, yeah, and it was all over up. the magazines. Um, there were there was that April Fool about taping a seller taping a. 2p to the cartridge to get the blood turned on and yeah it, it was pretty big um it was it was to be found in most arcades i certainly played them all we covered those on another podcast um good conversions by probe and then sculptured software or something like that i'm reaching off the top mm-hmm. of my head here um western developed ports of a or british possibly developed ports of an american game Sur- surprisingly cruddy to middling sega translations probably based on the fact that Sega was doing most of its arcade business in the mid to late 80s with sprite scaling and the Mega Drive was not built for sprite scaling really. Um, So Thunderblade, Galaxy 4, Space Harrier and Outrun are all pretty lacklustre. Some of them outsourced? Uh, Yeah, uh, I think Outrun and Galaxy Force are definitely outsourced. The others I'm not too sure about. Um, uh, But 
uh, it's also worth mentioning that it's a Super Thunderblade, so they could technically say it's a different game. It's not. We haven't made Space the Harrier arcade version well. badly, and Space Harrier Two. Yeah, so yeah. I suppose they can mm. technically say no. These are different. Still disappointing. Um, Thunderblade and Space Harrier both included, and, and Galaxy Force on the recent uh, Xbox One, PC, and PS4 compilation. So you can see just how rough they are. Uh, we already mentioned Super Revenge of Shinobi, and there was a later sequel. Uh, curious case of Shinobi Three was that it was uh, finished and then sent out for review, and then the reviews were so middling that they took it back in and made it way better. Yes, yes, that's yeah. right. <laughs> There's a lot of old screenshots floating yeah. around of that old version out there. And I, you know what? I'm happy they did it totally. because Shinobi 3 is, is a classic. Yeah. Uh, with all with most of these games, I would recommend, as always, we do on Kane and Rinse, recommend seeking out the M2 versions where you can. Um, talking mm. about the sound chip variations, those M2 versions on 3DS and Xbox 360 and probably PS3 as well actually allow you to select between the different Mega Drive sound chips. That's the sort of attention to detail that you get with those guys. Uh, Streets of Rage, obviously, uh, it's a trilogy that we've covered uh immense um for me streets of rage 2 is still the yep, epoch of the brawler now there there is one uh funny thing i noticed about streets of rage 1 that i not sure that many people Ooh, have picked up on is that it runs at 30 frames per second hmm. which is very uncommon on the mega drive hmm. i'm not sure they fixed I, this with the know. with the sequels yeah. and it's they're very fast and smooth but the original is only huh. 30 frames per second didn't bother me in which the slightest is odd. at the time it, yeah, yeah exactly back in the day i didn't notice it either but you go back now it's like oh this is kind mm. of uh this isn't as fluid as the yeah. other ones and the sprites are smaller too so weird yeah exactly it's they just you know they had to learn this it system. was hugely atmospheric though and uh and yeah oh yeah it was, yeah uh, streets of rage one definitely got me excited for streets of rage two even if it ultimately was completely uh eclipsed uh, Nup Raptor from the forum says if the Mega Drive was defined for me as something that brought the arcade experience into your living room then it was the mighty Streets of Rage 2 not an arcade port obviously but fighting Barbed in the Rain the incredible soundtrack the aptly titled Chaos of Mania difficulty with two players unparalleled Toadamonel's already been mentioned a real curio it's almost a roguelike character yeah, it's a roguelite. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it so is. You're yeah. right. Roguelite, at least. Roguelite, maybe. Yeah, very odd. Um, also available widely on current systems. Recommend checking it out. I think it, I don't know if it sort of sold machines, but it certainly added to the strength and diversity of the library. Big time. I think Echo the Dolphin probably qualifies as that as well. Although that, again, on a technical level, uh, what they did with some of the effects in that game were genuinely jaw-dropping at the time. Uh, I just remember spending hours. The game was quite frustrating, but leaping out of the water was just endless fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And also, that's one game that is best on Sega mm. CD. Uh, new soundtrack, I believe. The soundtrack is tremendous. Yeah. One of the best Has it got the, the little system. educational FMV uh, bits as well? Uh, I'm sure it says like dolphins breathe air Um, (laughs) I'm sure there's like you might be right about that I I don't remember that much and I played it recently and I don't recall that specifically but that may be in there in between stages oh it could be the Dreamcast sequel no definitely not that's a good um, one definitely not that one that's a good one though (laughs) Uh, Gunstar Heroes we've covered on the show uh, a real um, Mm. just a classic example of former konami coders treasure showing their ridiculous technical chops and creative chops by just saying we want this in the game we'll throw it in the game (laughs) and uh yeah uh it's it's just a mad one and again you can play it on all sorts of platforms ranger x a bit more of a cult classic 
uh, ex Ranza mm. also. Dan, you got something to say about this one? Technically, um, shows more colours on screen than the Mega Drive was supposed to be able to show. Yeah, a few games um, did this somehow. Yeah, yeah. well, it's by um, I think the um, some of the eight bit machines did similar things as well, where there's like shadow and highlight versions of the mm. colours, so a brighter version right. and a, a less bright version. Yeah, which then sort of triples the palette i suppose but it, like, it doesn't mm. really but um why didn't everyone use that uh, i think it wasn't found until a little later um i remember ranger x uh, being sort of hyped in the magazines for being this game that was gonna mm. show more colors than you'd ever seen on your screen before so so but and by that point we're only a couple of years away from the end of the life of the yeah. system so mm. i remember enjoying ranger x but i remember it only taking me about two hours to beat that sounds about right. Um, Eternal Champions uh, mm. gets a bit of a laugh these days, and possibly rightly <laughs> so. But it, it was quite a big deal uh, at the time because uh, was did it come out pre they got Street Fighter on the system or no? It was after, I think. Was it? I'm not sure. It was all around yeah, the same very time. Very close. Um, okay, great. Which I don't think was planned by Sega. At <laughs> no. Um, this well, I don't know. I, I I never played it. So you guys, anything to recommend Eternal Champions? I've played the original, and there is also a sort of a sequel on the right. Sega CD. I quite like that CD cheesiest... version. In a funny way. Yeah, yeah, the CD version's great, but man, there's FMVs. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> Probably worth checking out on YouTube if you can't play it. Yes, but yeah, it's a it's an interesting game. Um, I mean, I don't think it plays as well as Street Fighter. What do you think, Dan? Um, yeah, it's it's clunkier. It's um. It's got all the hallmarks of a Western-developed game trying to be yeah, like a Japanese exactly. fighting game. Exactly. Totally. Yeah, that was my that was my impression of it, yep. which is why I never got on board. But uh, maybe we'll get a Killer Instinct-style uh, modern-gen reboot <laughs> at some point. Maybe Sega will give it to Sumo or something. Who knows? Um, Comic Zone we've covered in a separate show. Uh, a really odd game. Um, mm -hmm. Technically quite remarkable i think in some ways and audio visually yes. as well but uh, not a game i Probably love the best use of that gems um audio uh, okay we were talking about earlier is um, that it what seems to sort of almost transcend the horrible sounds that that usually makes right right and uh <laughs> vector man one and two came very late in the mega drive's life they are also staples of modern mega drive compilations um they didn't make much of a splash at the time i don't think because people were moving on but Actually, again, they're they're pretty playable and on a technical level, rather unlike most things on the system, using different, very different looking tech and graphics. Yeah, so there's two things about it. They tried to simulate the CGI pre-rendered look that was made popular with Donkey yeah, Kong Country, right? But with the limited color palette, it's a rather dithered game. But they also do this really cool thing with sort of faking dynamic lighting. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like when you when you fire your weapon, they change the colors of the sprites and surrounding, I guess, tile work, if I recall, to make it look like it's actually a dynamic light, even though obviously that no such thing exists in that sort of system. But it was a really cool effect at the time, I thought. There's some clever levels between the levels as well, like yeah, um, exactly in the first game where there's a, a where Vector Man turns into a train, but you've got this enemy sort of like clawing at you from below the train track like scraping up it's just a visual effect that i hadn't seen done elsewhere at that point 
yeah, yeah for sure the system was being pushed in interesting ways by this point going back in time another genre that was certainly key to selling the system to me as something i wanted were the conversions of uh, particularly japanese arcade shoot 'em ups the likes of which i used to throw endless money in in coin op form and was very happy to be able to rent or buy and play at home obviously uh, tatsujin or truxton was uh, probably the first Big One, Hellfire from Toa Plan as well. Uh, the Thunder Force games we mentioned, Ginog we mentioned on other shows. There was a Darius game, uh, Glay Lancer, a bit of a cult classic as well. Uh, there was an Alesti oh, game, yes. as we said, Musha. Uh, Steel Empire, yep. the steampunk game that was re-released on 3DS a couple of years back in a slightly remixed form. And uh, another one that crops up on all the compilations, uh, Crying or Biohazard Battle, as you may know Have it. Have you played that? Biohazard, yes, yes. Yeah, I think it's got a really odd sort of melancholic atmosphere to it's, it. It's, um, it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. the, the original name works, Crying. It's yeah. it's a very peculiar game with a weird mood. <laughs> it, ostensibly, it looks like Salamander or Life Force, but it doesn't really doesn't really feel quite like anything else. I can't remember which team made it or which developers. It's an odd one. Uh, any shoot 'em up memories, guys? I mean, Thunder Force for me was the one that I played the most back in the yeah. day. Specifically for yeah, Thunder Force. I played a lot of um, Darius 2, um, but I think it's mainly because I like, there's a snare drum sound um, <laughs> that I used to really oh, like yeah. from the arcades. The um, the Darius arcade machines used to have this sort of like, um, I don't know, it was just a sampled snare, I'm sure, but, uh, but it used to really stand out. And I, I'd always hoped that the Mega Drive version was had that. So in the import shop, I asked if I could have a demo to see if it had anything like it and it, it was nowhere near as sort of punchy but um but it did for me and uh and hey giant fish bosses yeah for sure yes uh, konami uh, made a slew of uh i don't know about a slew but they made a a sequence of really uh excellent games and the interesting thing that konami was doing at this point and we'll go into this in depth if we ever go cover these games uh, individually on the podcast is that they were taking their licenses and making one game for the Super Nintendo or one game for the Mega Drive and making games that played to the strengths seemed or attempted mm-hmm. to play to the strengths of those machines um, so uh, I think the Mega Drive versions of the two Turtles games they had were quite different uh, Sunset Riders was different to the Super Nintendo version as well. Um, their own Contra, their own Castlevania, Sparkster as well which was the sequel to a a Mega Drive only game, Rocket Knight Adventures, which was a lot of the treasure guys, I believe. And Junction, I don't know Junction. This is a weird one. Oh, uh, it's I believe it was licensed from Konami, but oh. they didn't actually develop oh, okay. it. Oh, yeah, it was, um, uh, it's, um, it was, is it Masio? So the original game was that two D top down. I can't remember. It's been a while. I'm not a big Junction guy, <laughs> but I believe it. <laughs> I what think it's I one of those games that I forced though, myself to like. Thought you knew everything, John. Oh yeah. <laughs> So Konami is interesting mm. because they were heavily connected to Nintendo yes. for years. Uh, so when they actually announced they were working on the Mega Drive, it was a huge deal. Mm. And that's when they started to bring a bunch of games over. Yeah. And yeah, Sunset Riders was pretty disappointing. Not a great version, but they really put their A game into some of these titles. I feel like Rocket Knight Adventures is one of the best games on the Mega Drive, I think. Uh, Contra the Hardcore, really, really good. Super difficult Contra mm-hmm. game. And, of course, uh, Castlevania Bloodlines is one of the most unique, strange Castlevania games. But, again, it holds up really well. And all of these games make supremely good usage of the hardware. Yeah. 
and it's actually this series of games which makes me miss these days like i'm i'm actually quite pro a single format future whatever form that takes in some ways um especially when you consider the similarities across games on the current xbox and playstation systems it almost feels like what's the point but the idea that you would have developers making their same IPs, but making sort of not wildly different, but significantly different games for rival platforms is such a fascinating idea. I'd love to see somebody doing that now. We saw that, um, the last time we saw that was with the Wii, if you think about it. Yeah, good point, yeah. There was a lot of you games could, like that curios. that were made specifically for the Wii, but again, I it, I wouldn't say it turned out quite like this. No. Back in this era, <laughs> right. you actually got some genuine classics that would often share the same name on two platforms, but they'd both be great. Yeah, and as a yeah, as a like, I was in my you know early twenties at this point, and I could afford to play both the versions on both consoles, and it was yeah, Ooh. it was just really really <laughs> cool. Um, cartoon or character-based platformers, really, uh, this was the era of those. Um, as far back as 1990, the Mega Drive got a, uh, a port, which sadly never came out over here, of one of my favourite games of all time, Rainbow Islands. This was uh, known as Rainbow Islands Extra because it had some some new levels and some remixed elements and stuff. Um, there was also a port of the New Zealand story with levels based on the arcade prototype rather than the finished version, the kind of weird thing that would happen. Um, I vaguely remembered there being a Ghostbusters game. I think this was one that my friend rented, but I don't remember much about it. I remember there being... Wasn't there a Ghostbusters 2 game? What was the the original Ghostbusters game? Was it a platformer? Mm, th- <laughs> um, Ghostbusters on the Mega Drive was a platformer. Yeah. Um, and very different. It keeps getting lumped in with the um, the Activision game. Right. But yeah, Did it's it a very different thing. Um, like Chibi, Chibi Ghostbusters in it. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, okay. I'm with you now. Not not the real Ghostbusters, but little cute Dan Aykroyds and 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 so on. Um weird. <laughs> uh probably be- better known actually is um Decap Attack or Magical Hat no Butobi Turbo Daibuken. Flying Turbo Hat Adventure. Uh Cast of Illusion I've already mentioned and Marvel Land. Uh I'd forgotten about this oh, one yes. Dan. Yeah, I mean, it's not the greatest platformer in the world. I think it was the last game that Namco released in the 1980s. Um, huh. Not that that's too important. But um, but the conversion to Mega Drive came out uh, just under one month before Sonic. So uh. <laughs> you've got this slow conversion of a, like a 1989 arcade game. Right. <laughs> and then suddenly this sort of beast yeah. coming out of the nowhere that the no boobler. one expected. It was, yeah, um, so... <laughs> I think it's just quite interesting that they released so close to one another. And um, Namco must have thought Marvel Land being, I think in Japan, it was quite a well-known arcade game. Yeah, yeah. They must have thought, all right, we're going to really do well with this conversion. And then suddenly... (laughs) Sonic the Hedgehog arrived in 1991. I mean, the history of that game is is huge. Obviously, we'll we'll cover it on the series someday. Um, But uh, for now... Thomas Quilfelt says, uh, I'm reasonably convinced that I'll never be as impressed by a game as I was by my neighbor's new Mega Drive running Sonic the Hedgehog. It's utterly trite to say this now, but the color palette, vibrant blues, greens, golds and browns and the music made an indelible first impression. I felt like we'd been transported to a fantasy tropical island. Fast forward to when I finally nabbed a secondhand console much later on. My infatuation with the console was much more to do with multiplayer gems like Micro Machines, Turbo Tournament 96, and of course, the boss of Brawlers, Streets of Rage 2. But yes, it was um, it was the absolutely key driving system seller for that year and possibly for the next mm-hmm. couple of years, Sonic. 
as somebody who was there at the time, it makes me a little sad how dismissive people are of Sonic now because I remember how great those games were at the time. And not only that, they're still great. Yeah. They are absolutely great. These, The revisionist history that suggests that they're not, you know, yeah. they were never Preach. good games. It's 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 wrong. I agree. They're, they're absolutely <laughs> extremely well-made platformers. You know, it's... And they're not just focused on speed. Nope, I mean, there's, ex- there's exploration and it's about mastery of its physics system. And you watch people that don't really understand the, the game or aren't into it or don't give it a shot. And you can really see that they just don't grasp the controls or are not willing to even really try. Like it's one of those games that's simple enough to pick up and just kind of bumble your way through, but you're not going to make that much progress in the end. And it really rewards mastery of the controls and just understanding how the game works. And I think it's that mix of it's a challenging game with really interesting level design that's beautiful to behold with an excellent soundtrack that drives you through it. And when you're performing well and nailing all these jumps and just rolling through everything smoothly, uh, it just feels it's that same feeling I would get later in games like Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, actually. Mm. Yeah where you just kind of, you, you get this rush where you're just like blasting through it and it feels amazing. And that, I think, is what Sonic does so well. And yeah, it was a big deal. It was the game that really pushed me to the Mega Drive or the Genesis, I guess, in the first place. Yeah, I'm hopeful that the positive reception to Sonic Mania has kind of reminded people what people liked about it. And I think part of the exactly. revisionism is to do with Sega's terrible treatment of its own franchise <sighs> over you know over the 2000s in particular but um yeah we'll definitely revisit the series uh, on the other show at some point sonic 2 arrived of course on sonic tuesday in 1992 and uh, the designer of the mega drive himself on being asked which game do you feel used the mega drive most successfully he says sonic the hedgehog 2 the two-player mode used an interlaced display uh, function which is the tv broadcasting standard to display both players windows in one screen doubling the vertical resolution on the whole game displays at the time both arcade and home console were using non-interlaced video i did make the video display method available when i developed the mega drive but because it requires double capacity for characters i never thought it would be used and uh, i don't know about on the ntsc version but the slowdown was tremendous on the pal version um but it still was impressive yeah um yeah i don't play that that mode too often to be honest I did back in it, the day i do think you're right about the slowdown and that's interesting because usually uh pal territory running at 50 hertz often fixed slowdown in games because the, the yeah. system was targeting a lower level of it performance. may have been less um the differential between the standard frame rate and the slowdown may have been less striking, but it was still treacly uh, at times. Uh, True. Jobo Bonobo says, The Mega Drive was not my introduction to video games as a whole. That honour was bestowed upon the Commodore 64, but it greatly increased my appreciation for them. I did not own one myself, but a cousin of mine got one for his birthday, along with Sonic the Hedgehog and Streets of Rage. The latter we got many hours of enjoyment out of, particularly as he even had a second controller so that we could go through the game together. However, we were never that good and would usually get our backsides handed to us two-thirds of the way through. Still, we had a lot of fun. It was the Blue Hedgehog who really blew me away, though. The speed, the colours, the environments. It was a true sensory delight and was the clearest way of communicating that gaming could do some wonderful things. It was also my first awareness of how consoles can differ from one another and that if I was going to get this speed rush, the Mega Drive was where I had to go. The poor Commodore 64 was not going to cut it anymore. Uh, We talked a little (laughs) about Sonic CD. You should definitely check out John's video for in-depth review uh, of the tech behind that and the gameplay somewhat as well. Sonic 3 and Knuckles was a big deal in 94, concluding the 
16-bit series for the next, well, for a while anyway. Um, yes, yes. I Sonic 3 both. was before Sonic 3 and Knuckles, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm talking about Sonic oh, 3 the, and Knuckles. Yeah, because it was basically one game split in half and then, yeah. Um, Correct, yeah, then, development yeah. issues that kind of forced them to split it up and to hit their dates. And, yeah. yeah, and I bought them both day one and um, I played through Sonic 3 solo and then when so, Sonic, Sonic and Knuckles came out, I locked on the cartridges as you could and played it exactly. through in one big hit. Now, you may have noticed by now, though, that this game does not reappear on collections, No, right? not very often. Not since Sonic Jam on the Saturn 20 years ago. Exactly. I think it's fairly safe to say that it has to do with the music issue. Yeah. Yeah. Where somehow Michael Jackson was involved mm-hmm. in the creation of the soundtrack, and you can kind of hear it if you listen to some of the samples. Yep. Yeah, there's a great uh, video exploring that uh, exactly. out there on YouTube. Check it out. Now, interestingly, there was also a PC version of this game released, and all of the tracks that had essentially michael jackson style yeah. samples in them were replaced yeah. with terrible midi renditions <laughs> that are just it's insultingly bad how awful those are so unfortunately at this state i mean if you want the game you pretty much got to go back to original hardware or sonic jam yeah which in that case is also kind of original hardware sonic jam is awesome um, but that's for another time. Uh, Joe exactly. Bonobo says, One Christmas my cousin got Sonic 3 and Knuckles and I was floored by the better graphics, sound, level design and, well, everything really. I remember in particular we would try to get through the whole game in one go and when we had to do chores, homework or other obligations we would put the game on pause so we did not lose our progress. Of course, with that game's save system it was a tad redundant but I suppose we developed the habit from the first game. <laughs> Uh, Disney's uh, licensed platformers by various different developers. Um, Virgin released uh, Aladdin, The Lion King and The Jungle Book uh, over a, the space of a couple of years or less. Uh, they were all pretty huge, technically pretty wonderful, especially Aladdin. Uh, I thought it was amazing at the time. And again, must have sold a few consoles, I think, to kids. Four kids, anyway. Uh, Joe Bobonobo <laughs> again says the Mega Drive was also the first time that I ever got frightened by a game I remembered for one of my birthdays I got the opportunity to rent the Mega Drive and we picked up Aladdin alongside it cue an evening of me and my friends taking turns going through the game after the party ended and all the other children went I stayed up a bit later than usual it was a Friday and was blasting through the game now I've never seen the actual film Aladdin and was horrified when after the third or fourth level this horrible old man with needle-like teeth was staring at me trying to warn Aladdin away from the caves it was only later that I learnt that it was meant to be a disguise by Jafar that tricks Aladdin in the film, but without this context, I just screamed like a baby and turned the console off, refusing to touch the game again for the rest of the rental period. I credit this memory to my refusal to even touch survival horror games. After all, if a Disney-based platformer can scare the bejesus out of me, what chance do I have when I tackle something that's meant to scare me? <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> um, and there were lots of other character, colourful character cartoon platformers, probably the genre I associate the Mega Drive with the most in a way cool spot earthworm gym tiny toon adventures dynamite well, Heady, game. bubber and sticks and wiz and liz and pugsy for some western developed ones i know you're a fan of these dan yeah uh, especially wiz and liz i mean um i think they're all great games but wiz and liz is a game that um where there's been no other game that plays like it since it's kind of yeah. its own genre there isn't just isn't anything else like it i'd love to see a modern indie game try and tackle the same idea i think what it does is it, it takes the idea of the um of Sonic's momentum and the um, the control that you have to get used to that John was mentioning, uh, and then sort of notches that up a bit so the turning mm. circle is even sort of tighter mm. and makes almost the whole game of that kind of flow of things. It's the kind of thing where if you play it for 
a couple of minutes on the easy settings, you'll um, you'll breeze through it and maybe not quite get what the game is trying to do. Right. Um, but if you crank up the difficulty and uh, when time becomes more more imperative, then that's uh, yeah, it's just a game that to me it's the I probably said this on too many podcasts, <laughs> but for my money, it is the best game or the game that I would go back to and play now the most, the one that I can still enjoy without. Uh, sort of nostalgia goggles. Was it? Um, was it, it was Psygnosis. Was it Amiga first and converted? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, well, I, I assume Amiga was the lead platform anyway, but mm. uh, consensus seems to be that it's best on Mega Drive. Yeah. The, uh, it had, it had the look. Had the look of Amiga about it. And uh, you wanted to mention uh, the probably the, the the piece that he's most famous for. Nathan McCree is the uh, Tomb Raider, the original Tomb Raider theme which we love. Um, he did the music for Bubba and Sticks, which was yeah, another core yeah. design joint. Yeah, so obviously pre-Tomb Raider, but um, yeah. he's really sort of uh, channeling that, that sort of toe jam and all jazzy, funky, hip-hoppy feel, but then uh, with sort of dub reggae and ska elements. And some of the sounds that he gets out of that chip are just sounds that I haven't heard anyone else pull out. It's kind of it's similar to Yuzo Koshiro's work. It's just sounds that, you wouldn't think that chip could make uh, from like uh, trumpets and uh, well, trombone is one of the great sounds that he uses in it. Hmm. That's cool. And uh, one that you will find easily enough these days is Ristar, which was Sonic Team doing something really quite different and weird. It's a peculiar game, isn't it? Yeah, there's a lot of it's you essentially have your hands that you use to grab onto things and fling Ristar around the screen. Yeah. And so it's a slower pace. It's a actually a very slow paced game compared to Sonic Mm. but you get some momentum going when you master the fling mechanic but it feels like a game that was kind of forgotten a little bit like there was a little bit of hype building up to Mm. it but then it just sort of hit and I guess because it's like 1995 and all the 3D stuff's coming out it just kind of got swept under the rug but I still think it's a great game and then another one that I wanted to touch on there is the Tiny Toon Adventures game Mm, I loved it uh, which again that's another Konami release And that's a perfect example of what we were talking about before, where they made a Tiny Toon Adventures game on the Super NES and the Genesis, and they are so different from one another, and they're both really, really good. Mm. Difficult, especially this one, but it's it's almost like a Super Mario 3, Super Mario World-style world map system, Mm -hmm. hopping around between the stages, and it's these big exploration-based stages. It's a really neat game. Yeah, it's a real fun jaunt. I I bought it, completed it, and then sold it, and then regretted it, and bought it again, and completed it again. I remember. So yeah, and I was in my mid twenties. So you know, t- tiny tunes. I'm all about it. It's um, also the second game uh, we've mentioned tonight where you can step on a rake, um, with Banana right. Brothers being the first. I think. How about Toe Jam? <laughs> Good call. Oh yeah! Wow, that's three three in a, three in a row. Wow. <laughs> Everyone's a winner, baby. It's the signature um, Mega Drive. Move. Before we move on, uh, it's totally a throwback, but um, I had a thought in my head that you could get Sonic 3 and Knuckles on Steam and you can so it would be interesting to know if that's got um, oh, okay. some musical changes or if it's mm. if it is the original version I know where they have chopped it out of the current console versions of that same compilation curious curiouser and curiouser uh, just wanted an, a nod to Mickey Mania uh, which oh, yes. became known as Mickey's Wild Adventure on the PlayStation and sold a lot of copies along with Rayman 1 um not perhaps the most playable of the Mickey Mouse games on the system, but a uh, a formative one for Traveller's Tales, I think, and mm-hmm. a technical marvel that was probably better on the Mega Drive than it was on the Super Nintendo. I had more levels. Or Sega CD. 
Oh, right. CD audio soundtrack. Yeah. It was nice. Hmm. Yeah, you can still get that one on PSN. Um, our Tony re- revisited it recently and said it was horrific to play. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Earthworm Jim also. Yeah. Um, really, really good game. Even better on Sega CD. Right. Uh, with okay. more, more stages and a fantastic soundtrack. Mm. Oh, yeah, that banjo of... track. <laughs> is yes, that for the um, bonus exactly. levels? Bonus stage, yeah. It, yeah. Is, it is indeed, yes. Hmm. We've mentioned the EA Sports games. I think these were big in terms of, again, driving sales among a certain demographic. Um, somebody, myself, who likes sports games as much as I like Japanese platformers and shoot 'em ups this was a big deal for me. I bought the EA Hockey original game and and each one thereafter i absolutely loved those games pga tour golf uh, played on the amiga but i also played it here fifa those early games were terrible but i loved them because they were well i sort of loved them they looked great (laughs) they were they were cool looking football games and as i say i spent a lot of money on madden um and nba jam was a big deal as well for a while there huge in america but popular here too great game absolutely in the Genesis port is pretty good, actually. Yeah, yeah, it was. Damn fine version. Moving on to, yeah, uh, sort of supporting cast among the Mega Drive library. I think early on it was very important that the Mega Drive got ports of things like Populous and Star Control, kind of legitimized it as a more serious platform, maybe? Yeah, and the Buck Rogers game was a quite a big PC RPG. RPG, yeah. And the Immortal, there's... Yes. Quite a lot of those PC RP, Western RPGs, well, I suppose not really RPGs, but at the time they were considered that. They were, yeah. And obviously Mega Drive's, uh, EA's sort of supporting cast of games, Road Rash. Road Rash 2 was especially a hit. They, they tended, with all of these series, the third one tended to be awful. The first one was kind of a proof of concept, and the second one was nail on the head. Although, arguably, with Desert and Jungle Strike, uh, Desert Strike was was very strong as well. Um, again, another system seller, I would suggest. That was that was a big deal at the time, and kind of cashing in on the Gulf War. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, tastefully <laughs> Those done. Are cool games, though. There's quite a lot to them, isn't there? It's um, yeah, like more more than most games at the time, anyway. The, like the uh, it's got almost got that modern feel of uh, you know where you duck in and out of your menus to look at your quests and uh, mm. and objectives and what have you and the map. I'd be interested to know if uh, how those games would hold up. Obviously, the the series went on with nuclear and Soviet strike on next gen. Urban strike was pretty ropey, but uh, and then there was the the LAPD future cop yeah future LAPD well. which um, birthed the MOBA. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> That's oh, quite a legacy. As did Herzog's <laughs> Fire as well, if you believe some people. Yes. Say. That's right. Yeah, it's in our honourable mention series. Um, yeah, there were also lots of ports of uh, popular Amiga 16-bit computer games like Speedball 2 and Sensible Soccer. I think they were important too. I know a lot of people, when we did our Sensible Soccer show, uh, harked back to the Mega Drive version being the one that they played. And Micro Machines, which started on the NES, I think, but really kind of... They, they did several versions on the Mega Drive and um, I think Turbo Tournament 96 is, is kind of considered the the peak of that genre, that series. Possibly two. I think it's one of those things that people argue about. Sure. Where sure. It, I think it depends which track layouts you prefer, <laughs> basically. Yeah, that figures. Um, Sega, as it has done since early days, really, um, has its uh, two main sort of RPG franchises, Fantasy Star and the Shining series, both of which had multiple entries on the Mega Drive. Uh, and again, you will find those on the recent compilations. Um, 
not necessarily the easiest, game, easiest games to play now. Um, Shining in the, the Darkness is the interesting one, being a, sort of almost a first-person sort of eye of the beholder dungeon master type yeah. game, as opposed to the strategy RPGs of the others. Yeah, uh, and the Landstalker isometric uh, oh, series yes. started That's here. That's a great one. Starring mm. Nigel, is that right? Nigel, yes. You a fan, John? Yeah, I, I like that one a lot. I always thought, and then I guess I always kind of felt it was followed up even better with Alundra on the PlayStation. Yeah. But this whole... It was sort of an isometric Zelda in a yes. way. And it worked yes, pretty well. I like it a lot. Check out Lady Stalker on the Super Nintendo and Dark Savior on the Saturn as well. Um, there was a wonderful belated conversion of the original Gauntlet with major enhancements. So Domark handled this. I can't remember. Was it Probe did it? Did the I can't or was it just Tengen? Gauntlet four. Yeah, I'm not sure. Oh, it was yeah, cool I'm not sure anyway. Uh, yeah, it had an RPG kind of mode to it, didn't it? Yeah, well, you had to go up four towers, and uh, so it had more of a an actual quest to it than the the original arcade machine, which was all about just you know getting through as many levels as you could before they started repeating. Um, yeah, well worth investigating if you're a Gauntlet fan. It's a series we must cover someday, um, and a real favourite of mine. Again, available on the recent compilation, and you can play it easily enough. Is the story of Thor, or also known as Beyond Oasis, which was yes. many of the same team as Streets of Rage. Yes, it was uh, done by Ancient. Ancient, yeah. Exactly. So now the weird thing about that one is it's one of the other few games that runs at 30 frames per second huh. on the Mega Drive. But you can see it's kind of pushing a lot of visuals. It's beautiful. pretty impressive yeah. for the system. But there's another one that I'm thinking of. Uh, did you guys familiar with Crusader of Senti? Uh, Soleil, or, I think it was called in Europe. Is that the other Zelda like? Yeah, that, that hatted dude. It, exactly. That's yeah. that's the one that uh, I feel was Sonic Software Planning was it? Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, I played that. It I basically that. competes with uh, a Link to the Past on the Super NES in a lot mm. of ways. Like it's not that good, but it feels yeah. And the screen like setup is almost a, a identical stab at that. as well. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. It's a cool game. It's I like that. Yeah, one a lot. me too. Uh, Nup Raptor again says I have two highlights that are difficult to separate uh, the first is the superb Shining Force this was my first exposure to a JRPG I appreciate it's more of a turn based strategy and gameplay but it has many JRPG trappings in terms of plot, style and characters I was blown away that epic fantasy world those bold cartoon sprites it was the first time I've been completely captivated by a game looking up from watching Lord Kane's devastating assault on the kingdom of Guardiana uh, to realise that hours had passed. Trying to find the secret bikini for Tao, I was a 14-year-old boy. Realising that you got a unique attack animation if you finished Dark Dragon with Max and the Chaos Breaker. Superb. Uh, some honourable mentions. Uh, Herzog's Wire you mentioned, which uh, was around the same time, or precursor to Dune 2, really, and uh, kind of co-invented the rts probably <laughs> um just just the small matter uh assault suits lanos or target earth oh, yes a big mechy shootery things like uh cybernator yes related to cybernator yes the um predecessor i was gonna say prequel that's not the right word is it but um yes the so it's not quite as um what's the word in your face i suppose it's a mm -hmm. slightly lower key and uh, i suppose I suppose being an earlier game in the series, especially uh, with the SNES having that little bit more graf graphical capability in a few years down the line. But um, but playability-wise, it's great. It's very, very difficult, oh, right. um, but has some great music and um, a fun, difficult, tactical kind of shoot-em-up. Cool. Virtual Pinball, Devil Crash MD, kind of fantasy pinball, doing pinball things that only a video game could do. It was a conversion of a turbo graphics game i think yes yeah. an excellent turbo yeah. graphics game. dragon's fury uh, known as in the west um very cool 
lots of uh, shredding in the soundtrack and um, sort of gnarly biomechanical Giga-esque imagery. <laughs> uh, Indeed. There was a conversion of Puyo Puyo and when it arrived in the West, of course, they'd skinned it with some sonic stuff. Uh, Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine. Um, Alicia Dragoon, bit of a cult classic. There were conversions. Are they conversions or were they home special versions? Splatterhouse yeah, 2 and 3. Yeah, they're um, exclusive to the Mega Drive. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Psycho Pinball you've got here. Yeah, it's um, kind of um, analogous to uh, Pinball Fantasies and Pinball Dreams on the Amiga. It's a very similar kind of game, but it's got... Okay. Um, it's got like a progression to it. You go from one table to the next. So it hmm. sort of reminds me of what was that? The PS2 um, 3D pinball game. Puznik. Uh, pu uh, no, Puznik. Flipnik. Flipnik. Yeah. Um, yeah. It oh, reminds yes. me a little bit of Flipnik in that it's got, yeah, like a bit more progression than just play this table, play that table. Right. A bit like uh, the the current one, uh, Yuko, Yoku's Island Adventure. Oh, is that what oh, that yes, is? Exactly. Yes. Oh, yeah, cool. exactly. It's a yeah. fantastic game. Yeah, check it out. Um, and I really wanted to mention Red Zone just because yes. it, it was the case of uh, Scandinavian programmers or Icelandic programmers, um, who some of whom would go on to form IO Interactive, doing yep. ridiculous things with, with the console. Another great Yes for Kids soundtrack on this one as well. Yeah, John's got to have something to say yes. about this as, uh, as the technical analysis. Yeah, this is one of those games... Yeah where they're so proud of their tech that they announce a lot of the features when you first boot yeah. up, which I thought was amusing. And it starts with that awesome, like, sort of full-motion video yeah. sequence. It's like a two-bit color FMV, so it's just red and black. Yeah. But seeing that on a Sega Genesis back then was quite something. But then you actually get into the game, and it's uh, they sort of simulate... I, I don't even know how they do it. It's real 3D yeah. perspective. So... The helicopter sections don't look amazing, but they're smooth and you get some neat scaling. But then you actually get on the ground and it's like an overhead yeah. shooter and they actually render out the walls around you. So you're looking top down, but the walls themselves have actual perspective mm -hmm. as if it were a true 3D game, yeah. which I need to research how they did it. But yeah, it really gives you the impression of exploring a true 3D environment from an overhead perspective. I'd love to see uh, your your video breakdown of this one. That would be cool. Yeah, I, I, it's it's one I've I've been meaning to look more closely at and try to understand what they did because there aren't a lot of games in the system that push it in quite this way. So, yeah. really fascinating project. Mm. And a late release movie tie-in, Traveler's Tales again, I believe. Toy Story. Yes. Um, Push the hardware impressive. again in 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 ways. Uh, it has that very much that pre-rendered look, which kind of suits the source material, mm -hmm. um, and it reviewed pretty well. Yeah, it's a it's a neat little platformer. I mean, it looks a little odd because of the pre-rendered stuff mm. on the Genesis, you know, but they do some amazing effects on there, and a lot of like pseudo three D sections, and it has like a real depth to it. Like the use some of the levels where it looks like they use sort of like line scrolling and manipulating the scan lines to really truly make it look as if you're navigating a almost like a 2.5D style game as we would come to know it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we must uh, we must start to draw things to a close, but we should talk a little bit about uh, the Hall of Shame, the turkeys. Um, yes. I, now, Dan, I know you got upset because one of the inclusions here, but this was <laughs> this was not my list. Um, th this was based on some uh, some research because I managed to avoid most of these apart from one or two. Um, but uh, sort of so, Dan, I did play on the Amiga. I never played it on the Mega Drive. Was it even worse? Yeah, it's meant to be a bad conversion of a bad game. Um, <laughs> awesome. I, I went to London 
I, again, I think I just got fooled by the screenshots. Now, bear in mind, I would have been like sort of 13, 14, I suppose. Yeah. But it just looked so good in still screenshots. Huge sprites. Yeah, and then the back of the box looked so good. And it had gore and... Uh, and I knew it had sampled sound. I think they made that a, a sort of box point as well. Yeah. Um, which shouldn't have sold me, but just the idea of sampled sound just sounded so exciting. So I traded in a few of my um, Japanese games for it. Oh, um, and, then, and I'd gone all the way to London on the train and uh, I was so excited about getting it home. Um, and it's one of those where I really should have waited for the reviews first. Full-blown buyer's remorse. Uh, yeah. Any others? Few Rise of the Robots, Batman Forever, Dark Castle. Uh, never owned any of those, luckily. No, John. Any uh, any hideous Rise moments of the of... Robot? I did. I, I managed to avoid all of these, <laughs> but I did rent Rise of the Robots <laughs> out of curiosity. Uh, I mean, you guys have to remember the hype for that oh, yeah. thing was huge. Mm, sure was. I mean, it was like all oh, pre-rendered. Like we got the SGI stations creating these amazing-looking robots. It's the best-looking fighting game you've ever seen. Yep. All the promo material looked unbelievable. Uh, obviously, it does. It's it's one of the worst playing fighting games ever made. You can't even jump over the other robots. <laughs> it's almost the a animation, scam, isn't it? It's, uh, it pretty much was. It, yeah, was especially it, yeah, the opening it, it, it issue is. of Edge that had the cover. I know it was one of the early issues of Edge yeah, anyway. Yeah, it was. And um, yeah, really yeah, yeah. hyped. Exactly. And CMVG hit reviews long before it came out. Very very dodgy. Yeah, they just had all these shots of basically pre-rendered images designed to look like a game that were not actually a game. And so when you actually play it, well, (laughs) there's nothing there. Can you imagine what would happen now if the media and a games developer tried that sort of thing? (laughs) Can you imagine what would happen? Um, I'm not sure it would be possible, (laughs) but if it... I mean, the closest we get is like, oh, this E3 demo uh, was downgraded. Yeah. But there is nothing even remotely comparable to the Rise of the Robots situation no. today. <laughs> Would uh, Driver Three be the last one? Maybe. Maybe the, we still get <laughs> close. We still get canned, uh, canned scripted demos and FMV target sequences. But yeah, this was this was next level. Um, so just before we move on, Dan, you want to mount a spirited defence for one of uh, one of the games I saw in a top ten worst Mega Drive games. Yeah, uh, list everyone, of balls. everyone, yeah, everyone lumps and lumps in on balls. Sorry, that's not. A <laughs> um, <laughs> Check yourselves regularly, gentlemen. <laughs> um, yeah, I I think it's a really smart little fighting game. It's okay. um, especially it might it might be partly the tech and the we'd seen sort of Virtua Fighter and the original Tekken and it was it might be that I was being fooled a bit by that but I can still go back to it and enjoy it I think it's like I've learnt the moves for all the characters it's one of those I really did get into it as a fighting game back then Um, and it's just a really clever use of tech to use these um, sort of I suppose garrochaded balls to Mm -hmm. um, probably not real garrochading it would be something else but yeah, using balls to create these three D figures and have a full three D environment. It, I don't know. It's, you couldn't get that on any other Mega Drive game. So it, it's. I think it deserves at least a little more credit than it's given in all the lists. Fair enough. I do like a spirited defence of a of a widely criticised game. Uh, Suits from the forum says the Sega Mega Drive leaves me an indelible impression of culture evolution and magic that has shaped my adult life in ways of what i now look for for joy and entertainment without it i'd not be the person i am today that's pretty cool um wow 
I recommend that folks uh, check out John's video, Digital Foundry Retro, on the Sega Nomad. But uh, you sort of start the piece, uh, I think, quite rightly, suggesting that the Nomad was sort of the true precursor to the Switch. Yeah, and I, you know, a lot of people were bringing up other things like the PC Engine Express and all that, but what made the Nomad specifically in the same vein is the fact that you have it's a portable console that can connect to a TV yeah. and it allows for multiplayer on a single portable unit or on your TV. So it kind of hits all the same points. It's just that the way it was executed wasn't especially good, especially, you know, the switch comes with everything you need for, for instance, whereas uh, the Nomad, you don't get your video cable, you don't get, uh, you don't even get a power brick in the box. It's all running on batteries mm-hmm. and it was kind of expensive and late in the system's life and the screen wasn't great. So it's not an amazing machine, but it's a cool little yeah. piece of history, I think, in in the life of Sega. Hugely desirable uh, at the time, but yeah, it didn't come out over here and uh, was expensive to import. But yeah, check out John's video. Uh, there were also uh, clones, of course, including things like the Scorpion 16 pirate consoles. Do, do you Would you ever consider entertaining the idea of having any of these in your collection, John? For uh, curiosity's sake. I thought about it yeah. more out of just, yeah. um, you know, looking at clone consoles as maybe a concept. Just They're fascinating, I will say. It's not something I'm that interested in owning myself, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't mind covering them just to kind of get the information out there. Yeah, no, that would be cool. Um, I tried to also- something earlier. I used to have something mm-hmm. called a Mega Drive 4. Um, what it was a it was a Chinese um, I think it was pretty much all built into the pad or there might have been like a little breakout box that went into the TV but it said it was officially licensed now I don't know how true that is and it was one of those where it had a bit like the um, sort of Famiclones where you'd have a couple of dozen versions of the same game with uh, slightly altered graphics or something like that but um, but yeah it was called the Sega Mega Drive 4 and uh, it had all of the like small print, alluding to the fact that this was an official console. So I don't know if maybe in hmm. in China it might have been, and just one of those things that wasn't supposed to have got out to the West. But I can't find anything about it online, so um, you can yeah. either believe me or not. We believe you. Um, <laughs> yeah, of course, Sega's announced that there will be uh, a, a mini Mega Drive Mini coming later this mm. year, I believe. Uh, will our games the- have fixed the sound though? Yeah, I mean, that's nope. the question. We'll have well, to wait okay. to see. That's, that's unfair for me to say that, but, yeah. you know, their track record is poor. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, so, yeah, uh, wait and see is definitely the uh, advice there. It would be lovely to think that they would absolutely knock it out the park with some beautiful top-tier emulation and visual options and stuff, but uh, I don't hold out much hope personally, but wait and see. Um, and I also just wanted to mention, we're not obviously not going to go into them or review them, but there are people still making Mega Drive games. Um, there have been games yes. uh, as recently as the last couple of years. Things like Pier Solar, which has come to other systems. Um, Beggar Prince came out quite a long time ago now. It's great um, Brawler coming out soon, isn't there? Okay. I can't remember the name of it. Um, yeah. Tanglewood is an odd name, but out. it looks absolutely superb. They've really gone for, um, they've leaned heavily into the Streets of Rage thing, um, both sound-wise and graphics-wise. Right. Um, it begins with a P, so if you look for okay, new, yeah, brawler, I don't know that one. Beginning punch with P, up. you'll find it. 
yeah, as with every legacy system, there are people out there coding games, new games for it. If you read Retro Gamer magazine, you'll see some of these every month, whether it's the Atari 8-bit or whatever. There's there's new stuff happening, and the Mega Drive is no exception. Um, normally, sometimes you can buy them on cartridge form. Sometimes you can just download the ROM. Um, but it's a, it's a fascinating scene. And as you say, Dan, normally they're, they're dragging things out of this hardware that didn't seem possible i don't know if they i don't know how they do it whether they code on original dev kits or modified souped up technology or they code on emulators i I don't know how it works have you got any insight on this john there are a number of so i have done some coding for the game Uh and um in that case i'm i don't remember the name of it now but i'm actually using some rather old software to do it but uh there's different packages out there and and things you can use to do it now in my case i was just uh trying to learn the assembler for the game boy and using like notepad plus but then they actually have tools you can use to sort of you know compile it and turn it into something that can be used on the system but i don't actually know what sort of tools are out there for programming on the mega drive or i would hope that they've improved or there's a little bit more to it because trying to write code for the machine on in like notepad it's really frustrating i will say trying to get that stuff to compile and find out the errors and everything like that so but you know hearing stories about how things used to be made back in the day you know it wasn't easy (laughs) no no too right uh mad socks from the forum says ah the mega drive the start of what i call my proper foray into the world of video games before this i dabbled with the nes and the master system through friends but i still wasn't a console player i had an acorn electron and then an amiga 500 having seen the adverts on tv at the time i said to my parents that i wanted one but because of the quite ridiculous price at the time something like 180 pounds with a game i wasn't confident three months had passed since the launch and it got to christmas early morning rushing down to open presents i scanned the bottom of the tree but couldn't see anything i ended up with some cool stuff but in my mind i was really disappointed especially as i knew my friends were more than likely getting one at the end my mum feigned shock saying she forgot a present went in the kitchen and brought out a brand spanking new mega drive i was made up Sonic the Hedgehog World Cup Italia 90 Streets of Rage were purchased very quickly, along with several others that I bought with Christmas and birthday money. I was fully fledged Sega Boy. Looking back now, the graphics were pretty bad. Hey, and the cost of the cartridges were quite simply eye-watering, but at the time they were the height of video game supremacy. There was a guy who had a video game stall in the marketplace close to my parents' house, and I recall every Friday night he would come round at about 8 to 8.30pm with a whole host of Mega Drive games in the back of his car, £3 for a week's rental. Sounds so dodgy. Me and my mate just used to rent five or six games at a time, ranging from Gunstar Heroes, World of Illusion, Castle of Illusion... My mate's dad was also the manager at WH Smith in Runcorn, so at the weekend before the shop opened, we always used to go in the back of the store and play on the latest games. Quite simply, the halcyon days of video gaming. Wonderful stuff. Uh, Stay safe, children. Um, Jobo Bonobo finally says, due to the many re-releases Sega has produced over the years and a friend who collects old video games, I have got to experience a much larger slice of the console's library and have been pleasantly surprised at how much of it holds up. Road Rash, Rocket Knight Adventures, Micro Machines, Gunstar Heroes, Ristar, and many more. There was a whole lot I missed out on when I was younger, and I loved it all. If it wasn't for the Mega Drive, I would not be here writing this comment and enjoying this podcast. And for that, it will always have a special place in my heart. Bless you, everyone, for contributing. Look out for our next special on the PlayStation in three months. Uh, 
But now we must summarise. I don't really feel I need to say too much uh, before I hand over to my guests. Uh, we've been running a very long time apart from anything. But uh, yes, the Mega Drive was my first dedicated video games console, I believe. I'd had computers up to that point and it opened my world up to genuinely top tier arcade, near arcade quality uh, conversions and arcade style games from Japanese developers um, really start, started me appreciating the work of uh, Sega's in-house studios. Um, total magic memories, so much nostalgia for those games, and I'm still happy to rebuy them every time they get re-released in whatever format, even if the, the emulation quality isn't always as good as it is at other times. I think ultimately, if you could do what John's done and get the kind of best setup, um, like Amikil does as well, and play things on original hardware, original cartridges, on cathode ray tubes, and through those visual outputs, then uh, that is absolutely the best way to do it. Um, but for those of us who you know, don't have the time, money, space, whatever it is, whatever prevents us, um, I still recommend seeking out some of the highlights of the library of the Mega Drive. Uh, it was undoubtedly uh, a very important first major step for the industry and for the medium uh, from 8 to 16-bit. Dan? Like, like you say, we've covered so much in this episode. That I know. <laughs> Thanks for bearing with us, guys. Sum up. But um, I think the thing that's possibly difficult to get across for people who weren't of the age that we were at the, the release of the Mega Drive is just how much of a leap it did feel to us to play those games. Yeah. So what might get that across is... Perhaps having a look at this, um, I've looked up the name of that, uh, the brawler that's coming out. It's called Paprium. Uh-huh. And uh, it's going to be the biggest Mega Drive game ever released. It's 80 <laughs> megabits, which is actually bigger than... Bigger than allowed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then there's the, you know, the demo scene, uh, which, funny enough, is where uh, Xerinx, who made uh, Red Zone, yes. sort of sprung from. But there's, yeah. a, there's a couple of great Mega Drive demos from, uh, they're a little more recent, uh, from this past few years, but one called uh, Overdrive by Titan and one called Overdrive 2 by Titan. And I think oh, yeah. watching those and knowing that it's the same system huh. that has yeah. altered Beast and what have you, I think that <laughs> might get across to someone who wasn't there mm. how those how it all looked and sounded to us at the time. Beautifully put. And let's conclude with special guest John Linneman. Sum up the Mega Drive, <laughs> the Genesis. <laughs> I think it was one of the most exciting times in games history, to be honest. Yeah. It kind of changed the industry. It uh, it shows what happens when competition is fierce. You know, Nintendo was complacent at the time. Uh, Sega really came in and pushed them hard. And the result is that everybody kind of won with just tremendously good games coming out. And yeah, the, the Mega Drive, Genesis, it's one of those systems that I feel just just kept getting better with age more developers figuring it out, uh, the industry just shifting in that direction. And of course, they they were also the first company to really kind of push for, dare I say, the mature direction. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, Sega started what Sony would finish with the PlayStation, basically. And it kind of pushed games in a new direction in that sense. And, you know, it's it really had a lasting impact. And honestly, I think the library is, there's, there's a good reason why it keeps showing up in collections aside from just making money, but the library's great. It's really good. And even now it holds up well, especially when you consider the number of indie games coming out that sort of go for that style yeah. or similar sort of pixel art styles. They don't feel dated. 
I mean, th- these are classic games all around. And for me, this was the system that sort of, it really pushed me to love Sega, which would continue on for many years from that point. You know, I discovered the Genesis, really started paying attention to their arcade games. Uh, Sega's own Daytona was the one that sort of awoken my senses to 60 frames per <laughs> second. Yeah. Even though, you know, Genesis games generally were, but seeing that in 3D, I mean, Sega just was doing a lot at the time. And yeah, that, that was the point that really kind of pulled me into loving games, I feel. So, and Sonic, of course, I'm a huge fan of that series still today and all goes back there. So I got to say thank you to Sega for all that. Beautiful. Wonderfully put. So it remains for me, Leon, to thank Dan first. Dan Clark, uh, got anything you want to plug after uh, yeah give me a follow on, for us. <laughs> <laughs> um give me a follow on soundcloud uh, temporary McN- temporary mcname oh yeah <laughs> um or hey, i haven't shouted out my twitter in ages uh mealtime oh. strategy but without the y on the end beautiful thanks as always for joining us and thank of you. course john thank you for bearing with us on this uh, epic trawl through the history of the mega drive <laughs> it was a blast glad you enjoyed it uh, uh, you don't need our help but uh but plug your stuff anyway and your social media and whatever oh sure Oh, uh, yeah, you can find us over at youtube.com slash digitalfoundry or on eurogamer.net slash digitalfoundry. And you can find me at, at dark1x on Twitter. And, you know, if you go over there and you love retro games, do check out my series called DF Retro because that is, I pour a lot of love and effort into that due to my love of retro games. So, yeah, it's all passion there. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, I'm not just saying that. That's why we asked you on the show. And uh, yeah, any uh, can you give us a hint as to anything that might be... Co- oh, actually, people... It will already happen by the time people hear this, so don't spoil anything. Sure. Just, just... I, I, can, I can throw some stuff out there, and let's see if, I, if you can actually hold me to it. All right. I, I am doing some stuff on the, the Atari Jaguar. Cool. I'm going to dig into that library like I did with the 32X. Mm. I have a big special with Criterion Games, Ooh. where I went and visited their studio and talked to a lot of people. So lots of filmed uh, interviews and stuff exploring their history. Nice. Going to tackle Turok Dinosaur Hunter. Ooh. Because <laughs> it's a really interesting game of its yeah. time. And yeah, there's a lot of others that are, you know, in the back of my mind. Resident Evil's up there, you know, things like that. We'll see how it goes. But yeah, just doing whatever whatever kind of works but those are some of the big ones i have sort of in in the planning stages awesome can't wait well thank you uh, both guys again and to all our correspondents and all of you for listening and if you've enjoyed this podcast please remember to subscribe rate review wherever you can best of all slip us a dollar you'll have got this uh, three months earlier if you'd already done it patreon.com slash cane and rinse and next time in our next format special from super nintendo add-on to full-blown polygon gaming revolution sony's playstation